What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith from ESPN. This is former world champion boxer Showtime Sean Porter. Hey, this is Booby Gibson. I'm Josh Quinn. Hi, this is Joe Tate, voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And you're listening to Sports Power Talk. You listen to Sports Power Talk. And keep listening, or it'll be wham with the right hand. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the University of Akron, WZIP Sports presents the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. No question, with all due respect. This is Sports Power Talk. With the latest in sports news. Your Akron Zips are the 2022 MAC champions. The Zips have defeated the Kent State Electric Chickens. In-depth analysis. Astrology for women is equal to what Joe Rogan is for men. <laughs> have you ever tried DMT? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the hottest takes. He's just bad. Let me tear your labrum and you can go on the You know what? (laughs) It's only a game. Why you have to be mad? Just the same old Browns! You know, bro. Hard on pitch. I think that was textbook top cheese. Cleveland! This is for you! From the best that Ohio sports has to offer. To the best of the Akron Zips. Now, it's time for SPT. We are live from the University of Akron. Hello, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to Sports Power Talk, the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. And some may as go as far to say it's the best sports talk show there is, was, and ever will be. I hope my voice sounds familiar to you. My name is Matt Pribuka, and for the first time ever, they are letting me behind the board. I am your host for today. I am truly honored to be sitting behind the board. Uh, it's going to be a great show planned, but, you know, you guys know the format of the show. It's not just me. I'm here with two great analysts sitting to my right. It's my boss, the one that trusted me enough to host this thing. He is the WZIP sports director. It's Jake Murren. What's going on, everybody? It's a great day to be alive and a great day to kind of take a step back, be an analyst on today's show, and I'm excited to hear how you sound as the host, man. It well, should be a good show. Thanks, man. It's, you know, kind of nervous, like, having your boss, like, watch your every move, like, doing something for the first time, so, but, you know, you, you not not all that worried yet. I'm a friend more than a boss. Come exactly. On, I, I'm, I know, but you know, I'm your subordinate, so <laughs> I'm giving you power here. Accept the power dynamic. And to my left, you guys hear him weekly on 88.1. He's a phenomenal DJ, and today he's going to be a phenomenal sports analyst. It's Dev Lucas. Hey, how you doing, Matt? Dude, you know, a little bit nervous, but other than that, I'm I'm feeling really good. We'll how get about through you? it. Oh yeah, we'll be we'll be just fine. Uh, to all of our listeners out there, we have a great show for you today. At the 12.30 segment, we're going to be talking about all things Major League Baseball and, of course, your Cleveland Guardians as the season started Thursday. at uh, During the noon hour, we'll be talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA playoffs. We'll be going in-depth on a Cavs-Knicks playoff series and, of course, just some regular NBA playoffs. At 11.30, we're going to be talking about the NCAA tournament, men's and women's Final Four, and predicting the national championship, as well as our patent segment, Hot Mike, where we answer your questions live on air. There is still time to get your questions in, so go to Z88 Sports on Twitter, ask away. But right off the rip, guys, we're going to be talking about the National Football League and the NFL owners meeting that concluded in Glendale, Arizona this past week. Uh, so did you guys, you know, outside of what I said, did you guys follow this at all? I didn't really follow it. I kind of got the main headlines out of it, just you know, listening to sports talk radio throughout the week. But you know, there are certainly some headlines that came out of it. I know we're gonna kind of touch on. Yeah, them we're here gonna today. we're gonna get into it. Yeah, Dev, anything? Yeah, I pretty much was the same boat as you, Jake. I was listening to sports talk radio. Got some of the headlines. 
Gotcha. Well, one of the first things we're going to be talking about is the proposal that the owners are sending to the Players Union, which would allow Thursday night football to be flexed, meaning Sunday games can now be moved up to Thursday with a they have to teams have to be notified two weeks out. Uh, so what are your guys thoughts on this? Well, honestly, when I initially heard this, I was excited. But now looking back, I think it's a terrible decision because on one hand, yes, you're going to have more competitive games potentially on Thursday night. Like last season, a lot of the games were either like bottom barrel teams or they just were not competitive. Mm-hmm. And I think you would have more competitiveness, but I think there's going to be a lot more injuries if that happens. Like imagine, like I talked about this a little bit on Thursday. I was saying that imagine later in the season you have a game scheduled on Monday and they're like, well, let's move it to Thursday, actually. Exactly. Like right. that's a terrible choice. Yeah. Jake, anything from you? So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is only going to be in effect from weeks 14 through 17, I believe. Yeah, so it would be yeah. right. It'd be right up to playoff season. So the flex calendar for the leagues—it's the last four or five weeks of the right. season. The NFL has the autonomy to move games around to boost primetime ratings. Typically, you're going to put games with playoff implications on national television, obviously, and the clubs have to be notified uh, 15 days in advance. So, meaning if you were going to have your Week 14 matchup move from Sunday to Thursday. Day, they would have to tell you the day before week 12 begins. Right. And with those two things, at first I was like, this isn't that big of a deal because it's only going to be in effect for four weeks at the very end of the season. And that 15 days notice, hopefully that's going to be enough time to get these players and coaches prepared for another short week playing on a Thursday night. But now kind of digesting this news a little bit more. You're flexing playoff contending teams on relatively short notice to play on Thursday. So you're risking the health of talented players who could be more prone to injury with this rule change right before the playoffs start. So that's kind of where I see Des' perspective on this, where it's a terrible decision. So while there are going to be fewer meaningless primetime games, I mean, it was an all-time low last year with viewership for Thursday night football games. The con and like the concern is just player safety overall. Yeah, I uh, completely agree with both of your guys' standpoints there. I think it's a lot of the NFL catering to Jeff Bezos because he has the rights to Thursday Night Football with them being exclusively on Prime Video. I don't like the move at all. I think of it from a Browns perspective. If we're fortunate enough to be in playoff contention again this year, I would be absolutely livid if like a Nick Chubb or an Amari Cooper couldn't play because they're dealing with this injury that you know four days rest in between Sunday to now what is a Thursday game wouldn't give them enough recovery time. So I absolutely hate this move along with the rest of you guys. Uh, but get it into a move that we might actually like. The NFL ha- NFL owners have agreed to allow sports books to remain open on in- during allow sports books to remain open in stadiums during games on Sundays. So, what are you guys thoughts on being able to live bet on the NFL, inside of an NFL stadium on game day. Yeah, I think it's going to change the betting perspective there. And, yeah, I think it's a, it's not going to change too much, but, yeah, I think it's good. I think the Commanders right now are the only team that actually has a sports book inside their actual stadium, but I'm sure that's going to change very quickly. Oh, wait, look at the, Caval- look at the Cavaliers. They right. had, as soon as Dwayne allowed uh, sports betting, I think he signed that in January of last year, Dan Gilbert built this state-of-the-art sports book in Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse 
it's not going to take long for these owners to put something together. So Yeah, exactly. And being able to bet on a game drive-by-drive drive at a live sportsbook at the game itself is kind of an insane thought. Lines are probably going to be wrapping around the stadium, but I could see some fans sitting like a lounge area where the, sp- where the sportsbooks actually are just to watch it on a TV so they can just constantly place more bets, live bets on these football games. Personally, to me, like this wouldn't affect my experience going to stadiums as much because I would just do it from my phone from the seat that I paid for mm-hmm. so I could still watch and enjoy the game. But there's definitely an audience for this. I could see fans buying cheap nosebleeds tickets just to hang around the sports book the entire three hours of a football yep. game and just constantly placing bet after bet. And if there's one thing that I've learned so far in the three months of sports betting myself, it's that sports betting is so much more fun yeah. when other people around you are also betting with you. Really is, yeah. So with this, sportsbooks live at games, if you're going with a couple buddies or you find a couple new buddies at the stadium from this, I mean, there's going to be a huge, huge audience for this. Oh, I absolutely love this. I think just being from from a Cleveland perspective alone, I've gone to several Browns games in the midst of December. Like I went to the Browns-Ravens games this past year. And it was 17 degrees, and I was in section 516, and I was freezing. I would have loved nothing more to go into a nice inside sports book and lay down some live bets and hopefully <laughs> win back some money instead of freezing my you-know-what off in the nosebleeds. Yeah, and if even if you lose like $300. Oh, wow, but you lot. But you hit one bet that pays off like 100 and everybody else around you also hit that bet. Like You're going to remember that one big celebration as a group rather than the $300-plus that you lost that day. Net loss of 300 and net loss <laughs> net loss of $200 minus your ticket, minus yeah, parking. Yeah. Yeah. Jake. It's going to be that one high. If you hit that Jake, one you, bet, that's all that's going to matter, man. You, Everybody's going to be happy about it. Do you it. need a sports betting intervention right now? No, I'm, I'm good, man. Okay. All right. I trust you. I trust you. Uh, but uh, awkwardly segueing here, uh, Jake, you brought up the Washington Commanders earlier. It seems like Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder might finally be willing to sell the Washington Commanders. He wants roughly $6 billion. Now, there are two potential buyers for this. It is Jeff Bezos, who, you know, the owner of Amazon and the Washington Post, and a uh, collective group. Uh, the main name in there is Magic Johnson, but the majority of the money is going to be coming from Josh Harris, who is the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Uh, Do you guys have any thoughts on Dan Snyder potentially leaving the National Football League for good? I think it would be good because I feel like with him owning the Commanders, it's been nothing but bad press for the NFL. I agree completely. And, yeah, that's how I feel about that. Yeah, people like Dan Snyder don't deserve to own an NFL franchise. With everything that he's done, all the sexual misconduct cases against him, yet he's getting off here with you know a $6 billion purchase of the team. It's kind of like a, a lose-lose situation for your, for ethics and humanity any way you look at it. But getting him out of the NFL is def- definitely a priority here. And whether that is Jeff Bezos, who has a net worth of $123.3 billion, mm-hmm. Which is just wild to me. He's loaded. Or the Harris Group as well. You know, the Harris Group, they were in the hunt to buy the Broncos last season. So I could see either one of those people or groups being suitors here to buy the Commanders. Yeah, When you just look at all of Dan Snyder's past controversies, the first one that, like, I really paid attention to as a young sports fan uh, was the sexual misconduct allegations where it came out that above the so in the athletic training room of the Commanders facility, he installed glass staircases and glass floors so they could very sickly just, you know, 
look up. I'll leave it at that. They could look up and see through the, the ceiling. It was a complete. He's a despicable human being that has allowed terrible things to happen. Look no further than uh, just last year alone. He was subpoenaed by Congress uh, to ha- to be investigated for these sexual misconduct allegations. He did not show up. He was on his yacht in France and Greece. He avoided the United States Congress because he simply does not care. When you have money like Dan Snyder, there really is no such thing as consequences for your actions. And he's kind of let everyone else know that there are no consequences for my actions. And he's just used that as an excuse to treat people terribly. So I would be so happy. I would be elated to see him finally sell the Washington Commanders. Uh, It's looking like the deal could be done as soon as October if he were to sell. I think this is a great win for the NFL. Yeah, it's a great win for the NFL, and the biggest group of people that are going to win from this move would be Washington Commanders fans, because you feel for them. You know, there were chance of sell the team at FedEx Field last season, yeah. and you really truly feel for Commanders fans. They don't want to be represented by someone like Snyder anymore, and they shouldn't have to either. So, a sell or selling the Commanders would be huge for the Commanders fan base. Even going back, you. Uh, at FedEx Field alone, I forgot he had another scandal there when he when he refused to initially change the team name to the Washington football team. FedEx threatened to withdraw funding for uh, for the stadium. He wasn't going to change the team's name. He was going to keep it what it was. He did not want to. He did not want to change it. He did not see a need to change it. And then it turns out until he was going to lose money. That's when he decided to you know, reluctantly change the name. And then even FedEx Field, he's done a terrible job of keeping that facility together. Every year, there's a video of a pipe. I remember before the Browns played in Washington, there was a video of a pipe burst. You guys remember that? Like the infamous like sewage water leak at FedEx Field? I think I I remember hearing about that. I think it was 2021 or 2020. Just he is an awful, awful human being, awful NFL owner. And I'm glad to finally see him go, potentially. Yeah, it's a big win for the NFL, definitely. Yeah. And speaking of another semi-controversial owner, we have <laughs> Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam. He spoke with local media while at the NFL owners meeting, and he laid out his plans to renovate First Energy Stadium with several billion dollars over a five-year plan, meaning we are not going to be getting a new stadium in Cleveland anytime soon. Your guys' initial thoughts on that? I don't think the Browns need a new stadium, personally. I think, yeah, I know. First Energy, I think, is good, and it's not. It's not like the Coliseum in Oakland. It's not falling apart. It's not one of those type of stadiums. It's not like Soldier Field in Chicago. It's not like any of those. Um, I think a lot of people want a new stadium because the idea of maybe, maybe a potential dome being built, and maybe the potential of hosting a Super Bowl here in Cleveland. And yeah, like that's all well and good. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but. I don't know. I think it might take away from Cleveland football. You have a dome, and I like the. Um, I just like how First Energy is. I think it's a good stadium. Now you said it might take away from Cleveland football. Are because you one Cleveland of- football is playing in the cold? That's how I feel about that. All these, no. Yes. Were, were, were you there at the Saints game? Yeah, you were. Yeah. Wow. Well, All right. Dog pound. Okay. How okay. enjoyable was that experience? Cold. Okay, exactly. I, was, I was like dressed in like seven layers. It was great. At first, I thought like, "Oh, I got you," but then it turns out, no, you have <laughs> you have bigger cojones than any of us here. Oh my gosh! I, was, I applaud you. I was so cold, my eyebrows had like ice on them. Oh my gosh! <laughs> great. 
and you still great to me. And you still don't want a dome because you know, like, you know, how how dare I want to wear just like a hoodie to a game in December and not like have to like bear the elements of Lake Erie with like seventy mile an hour freezing rain. Yeah, but the elements are what's great about it. Like, think about this. How do you think Buffalo fans feel? Like, they love the elements Cold. There. No, because eh. Buffalo, they have overhead heaters in every section. There's a reason Ryan Fitzpatrick can go to games shirtless. It's because there's heaters that you don't see on the camera. Well, I, th- I think you might you might have me there, Matt. But uh. <laughs> See, I'm right there with you, Matt. I'm so over this kind of notion that primetime football or like the best weather to play football is in the cold is in 20 degree or lower weather and of course that saints game was just absolutely ridiculous like i went to the i went to the ravens game it was like 25 and i was miserable there was like only like 20 mile an hour wins it's miserable for the fans it's miserable for the players and you're not able to play football to its full capacity in that type of weather in those type of conditions especially because like there's so much more player movement now than there were back in the 80s so like you know during old municipal stadium the browns prime in the 70s or 80s like you know you would sign like an eight-year contract and you would live in the city you played football in year round like trades and player movement were quite rare so that's why people got this notion that players would adapt to the cold it wasn't necessarily that you know they're all from like like the brown all of the browns players are from the southeast deshaun watson's from south carolina amari cooper and nick chubber from georgia you know like it's, it's not an advantage to anybody and all these players they live in warm climates the rest of the year they all live out in la or miami i know when baker was here he had a place he still had his house in texas like People don't like the cold, and they shouldn't have to play football in it. That's just my two cents. Uh, but, um, guys, if we were to get a new stadium, would you want a dome or another outdoor stadium? Well, you're in my answer, another outdoor stadium. Yeah, oh, Mike, that's a little bit masochistic, man. I, <laughs> I, I don't get it. What's the point of building a new stadium if you're not going to have it be a dome or that's a retractable what, roof? That's what Buffalo just did. There's no roof on that? No, there's no roof on it, and it's all taxpayer-funded. The taxpayers of Buffalo, New York, are funding a multi-billion dollar stadium with no roof. (laughs) Poor Buffalo fans. But see, like, I don't know. Buffalo fans are just built different. Like, they probably do enjoy that type of climate. Like, they would go to that Saints game last year, and they would be shirtless enjoying the entire It'd be tailgating with Tommy Bahama on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, Buffalo fans, they're wild. But I don't know, like... You have to have a retractable roof, at least, at the very least. And that's kind of what I want. I don't necessarily want a dome so you can't have those games early on in the year with the roof open, other events in the summer with the roof open. But just having the option of closing it for games last year, like with the Saints or the Ravens or something like that, mm-hmm. I think that is absolutely the way to go. Yeah, but um, if we were going to get a new stadium built, there's not much room left on the lakefront. So if we were to build it, is there any particular location you guys would like the most could be for any reason whether you might live closer to there uh you know when you're not in school or just you think that'd be a good area for it so i'm no downtown cleveland expert i do love the lakefront i'd love to find some type of area on the lakefront where we could build a stadium i know reports are saying around the vicinity of lakeside avenue roughly between east 13th and east 17th street so if you know where that is yeah maybe there personally i don't like i said i'm not a downtown cleveland expert but just somewhere close to where it already is hopefully on the lakefront if not in that general vicinity yeah, I would agree with you, Jake. Somewhere close where it already is. I wish there was enough room to build it by where 
Rock and Morgan Fieldhouses and Progressive Field. Yeah. Because yeah. that would be perfect. All three stadiums right there. And I don't think it would be possible. Well, so though. there's one spot actually that kind of uh, try to do that, Deb. So when this first came out, the Browns were going to look into renovating First Energy in the summer of 2021. Uh, Jake, I know you work downtown. So when you get off on East 9th Street, right, you take the exit, and then you do that little wraparound. There's that open field, and then there's the post office. Okay. There were talks. The Haslams wanted to relocate the post office and use that as the site for their new stadium, extend downtown and connect it with Progressive Field and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and stuff like that. So we'd have like a sports district downtown. I would love to see it. I don't know if it would be like an eyesore. You get off the highway and boom, it's right there. It would kind of still be a little separate if Mm -hmm. the area that I'm thinking of. I don't know. I think anywhere would kind of work out. I don't think anybody's really going to complain unless it's really too far away from Progressive and Rocket Mortgage. Yeah, because like I, I, I like the location kind of now, but at the same time, like it's kind of a far walk. Like anytime I go to a game, I'm always walking about a quarter mile to the stadium from downtown. And I think that's, it can be kind of an inconvenience at times. Yeah. I don't like going to first energy stadium whatsoever. Mainly nothing against the stadium itself mm-hmm. or the team. I just don't enjoy watching NFL football live in person. Just something I, about I get, it. I don't enjoy. I only, I only like to go to primetime games okay. or division rivalry games because I agree. I like the TV experience so much more than the live experience. Uh, but, you know, I, I went to all the primetime games this year. I went to the Ravens game on Saturday night. I went to the Bengals game on Monday night football. And I went to the Steelers game on Monday night fo- or Thursday night football. Uh, just so I know I'm not missing out on anything else. Because, again, I love fantasy football. I love keeping up with my bets and everything, too. So I get that completely. Uh, but let's shift focus to a division rival that's having a lot more trouble than where they're playing football. Uh, Lamar Jackson. As most of you may know by now, as this news broke Monday, he formally requested a trade from the Baltimore Ravens on March 2nd, but put it to Twitter on March 26th. So, guys, if Lamar Jackson were to be traded, who should go after him and why? I would love to see the Packers go after them, assuming Rodgers actually gets traded to the Jets. But that uh, might be the Packers fan of me talking. Because, oh, boy. Um, I mean, I like Jordan Love, don't get me wrong, but I think I would like to have more of what I know I'm like what I know I'm no, going to know I, I get that you get a known commodity as opposed to you know Jordan Love is a great unknown right now I, I understand that notion I have three other landing spots for Lamar Jackson I think the Colts could be likely they just need to stop that veteran QB carousel that they're on these past couple of years Philip Rivers to Matt Ryan to just another Carson, Carson Wentz. Wentz in there yeah exactly and right now they have Nick Foles, Sam Ellinger, and Gardner Minshew. So not a great QB room whatsoever. Yeah. Then two other teams I have are the Falcons. They tried to make that splash last offseason to acquire Deshaun Watson. Of course, we know how that all turned out. Mm-hmm. Now they have a chance to get Lamar Jackson here. Plus, they pick eighth in the NFL draft, which means they could miss out on a top QB of their choosing and potentially use that eighth round or that eighth overall draft pick in a trade to acquire Lamar Jackson. Then I also have the Patriots here. They have $30 million in 2023 cat space to use. They have the 14th overall pick. And Mac Jones, I think he's just going to be average forever. And the Patriots are always aggressive every single offseason. Yeah, I I agree. I think Mac Jones is collectively mid. I did not have the Packers on my list at all. But, Jake, I do have a few teams that you may uh, did not include. I think the the Detroit Lions make a lot of sense if they were to trade for him after the draft. 
because they have two first-round picks. If they can use picks 16 and 18 to bolster that team even more, and then you acquire Lamar Jackson, that division's practically theirs because the Vikings were the most fraudulent 13 and 14 I've probably ever seen. That defense could that that defense was terrible, and they're they're bound for some regression if. They could win the division with Jared Goff, realistically. I could not imagine what Detroit could do in that division with Lamar Jackson. It's just so hard to imagine Lamar Jackson in a Detroit Lions uniform. I I think I just I, can't I imagine going I there. I think it's very easy to imagine that. I think he'd look good in that bright blue. Well, I think other than that, I think Jared Goff is a lot better than we think. Mm-hmm. Last season he didn't look he didn't look as bad as he did the season before in the Rams. I think that's what we could say from that. Okay. He looked, he looked like I guess you could say he looked like a game manager. looked like what Baker's role was here in Cleveland. Yeah, but can you win a Super Bowl with that? Well, probably not. But I would argue there's a lot of other teams that you can't win a Super Bowl with some quarterbacks. Fair enough, fair enough. And then I have a couple of other teams you guys didn't mention. I'm going to bring up the Washington Commanders. As we alluded to, Dan Snyder might be selling the franchise. And I think one last bleep you to the NFL would be, to hit, would be for him to sign Lamar Jackson to a fully guaranteed contract, set the quarterback market precedent (laughs) on his way out. Because he wouldn't have to pay for it. It'd be Bezos or Harris that has to pay for it. I I think that's a possibility as like an out-of-spite move. (laughs) I don't necessarily know if that's the most logical because they did just get Jacoby Brissett. Uh, They have Sam Howell for some... And they're fairly high on him for some reason. Uh, But... And they have pick 16 in the draft. Maybe if Levis or Richardson fall, they might draft a quarterback. But I think Washington's a potential suitor. And then another team, kind of a dark horse team that everyone kind of thought about but then stopped, the Miami Dolphins. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa, he has had three concussions this past year. His health is a legitimate concern. Again, they don't have a first-round pick this year. So they would have to acquire Lamar Jackson after the NFL draft if they were to get him. But, I mean, they're already in win now. They just got Jalen Ramsey, and they're spending money this offseason. I think Miami would make sense, too. I would like that move because Lamar is the same type of quarterback as Tua. Yeah, and I, and I, don't, think, I don't think Tua would be a terrible stopgap for the Ravens, too, either. Yeah, it's so hard with Miami because they need to make a decision. They need to pull the trigger whether they are betting on Tua Tungavaloa's health and keeping him mm-hmm. or if they actually see the concern in the organization and they get rid of him, like, move on. And they are in such a win-now mode. They have the roster. They have the talent to where if you go out and do acquire a guy like Lamar Jackson, you're right there in the hunting for a Super Bowl. I agree completely. Uh, so, guys, what do you think a potential trade package for Lamar Jackson would look like, uh, depending on if he were to be moved at all? I would say two first-rounders, a second, and a fourth. And depending on if there's a salvageable starter on that team, so say the Packers, for example. Like yeah, Jordan you, would, Love. you would send Love. If it was the Lions, you'd send Goff. Yeah, yeah, Patriots, yeah I get that. Mac Jones, yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. That's what, that's what I would think it would take to bring in. Yeah, he Lamar. does have that non-exclusive franchise tag, so any move, that Lamar, any, any move of Lamar would consist of at least two first-rounders. Yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of right there with you guys. I think it obviously depends on if this trade is done before or after the NFL draft. I could see the first two round or the two first rounders, maybe a second round pick next year, second round picks the following year as well, and then that salvageable starter that in return the Ravens could at least work with. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what would that that would leave Baltimore? Uh, you know, they wouldn't have a quarterback. So what what would they do if they were not able to acquire a stopgap starter in a trade? What do you guys think they'd be best with? 
like, what do you mean? Do you mean like their record? Like, for, like free, like free agency wise, like who would who would they have to play quarterback with them this season? I know, like when I looked at the free agent market, uh, pretty much Carson Wentz, Matt Ryan, or Teddy Bridgewater were the only decent starters available. So I mean, they still have Tyler Huntley on the roster. And if they trade him after the draft, they really don't have the option to draft a guy. So, what, like, what would you do if you were Eric DaCosta of the Baltimore Ravens? Well, we saw how Huntley looked last season. Uh, it might, honestly, you might just have to go with the flow this season if because there's no real talent in free agency. Yeah, and maybe maybe you just keep Huntley and see what he can do. See, and maybe maybe he's salvageable enough, and you can mm. draft someone the following year and have just that's how I see it I get it Jake how about you yeah you can do a lot worse than Tyler Huntley he isn't a terrible piece to start for a year or two until they find another franchise signal caller if they get a deal done to move into the top 10 picks of this year's draft then I could certainly see them taking the best available QB but Tyler Huntley he had a joke of a Pro Bowl season last year maybe he can maybe he can do something this year to keep Baltimore somewhat relevant all right guys and one last segment before we go to break here if Lamar Jackson were to be traded, hypothetically, how would you see the AFC North playing out this season? Give me your hypothetical standings if Lamar were to be moved. All right, so let me give you the Bengals at 12 and 5, gotcha. the Browns at 11 and 6. I like it. The Ravens at 8 and 9. All right. And then I have the Steelers at 7 and 10. Jake, how about you? I don't have record predictions, but I do have the same exact order Bengals, Browns, Ravens, Steelers, if Lamar Jackson does get moved for the AFC North standings. Yeah, uh, as far as my standings go, I would take the Bengals at 11 and 6, Browns at 10 and 7. Uh, I would take the Steelers at 8 and 9. I, Mike Tomlin continues to prove me wrong. And then I would take the Ravens at 6 and 11 because I don't know how Tyler Huntley and Todd Monken would really mix with each other. Uh, but that wraps up our first segment today, guys. We're going to be going to break. We'll be back fairly soon. So stick around. After the break, we're going to be talking about the NCAA tournament as well as our famous hot mic segment. So stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, to Sports Power Talk. If you are just if you are just joining us, you missed an incredible conversation about the NFL owners meeting and all things National Football League. But right now, we're going to be talking about the NCAA men's and women's tournament. And at the end of the segment, get into our patent hot mic segment. There's still time to ask your questions, so go to our Twitter page at Z88 Sports and ask away. Uh, but guys, let's get into the NCAA men's basketball tournament. So. As we saw last night, we had the final four matchups. Uh, before that, this NCAA tournament, one of the most chaotic on record. For the first time ever, there was no one seed to make it past the Elite Eight. Uh, you know, we had 15 seed Princeton in the Sweet 16, and we had a 16 seed upset of one seed. So, you know, what are your guys' thoughts just on the tournament overall before we get into the final four? I think this has been a really fun tournament to watch. Yeah. I have liked all the upsets, and it's just, I, I love this tournament. Jake? Yeah, the upsets are there. I think the one thing, though, is that argument you hear nowadays where it's, are these Cinderella stories really rooted for by fans as much as they are? Because in the first two rounds, it's nice to see these Cinderella stories play out and these major upsets. But in the Elite Eight, the Final Four, in the National Championship game, you kind of want to see those big-name schools in there, like the Dukes, like the UNCs, like the Baylors. You really want to see those those type of teams in the national championship game. So I know viewership and ratings are down a lot for this NCAA tournament, but from just a strict like viewer's perspective, it has been a lot of fun to watch. 
But isn't it? Sorry. Oh no, go ahead, Dad. Go ahead. Isn't it better though to to see teams upset those type of teams and see what they can do? So say that someone upsets Duke and takes it all the way. Like that, I feel like that's almost better than expecting a team like Duke to win the national championship. See, I think the no. same thing. But one thing that people care more about than the actual play of the tournament is their brackets that they create. It's their brackets, it's their bets, and it's their team. Exactly. Like, and nobody's rooting for Florida Atlantic because nobody had Florida Atlantic probably getting past the round of 32. Yeah, I, I can tell you pretty much everyone in Tuscaloosa had had tuned out this tournament after the Sweet 16. Uh, and, you know, Miami, like South Florida is probably the only region of the country that was you know still involved in this tournament because they had two teams in the Final Four. Uh, but, you know, like, as far as, like, Jake, I agree, as far as your UNC goes, as far as your Ohio States go, y- you need those blue bloods. You you need your you need large universities to draw in massive crowds so you get the ratings. But this has been one of the most chaotic and most fun tournaments on record. I think with the power of hindsight, once everyone forgets how much money they lost on their brackets and their, uh, and their parlays, <laughs> I, I do think this tournament will be looked at uh, very fondly. In, uh, in years to come. so, But let's get into the Final Four. Last, The first game last night was Florida Atlantic, a nine seed against San Diego State, a five seed. San Diego State advanced 72-71, to 71, and Lamont Butler hit a game-winning shot at the buzzer to send the San Diego State Aztecs to the NCAA championship. Guys, what were your thoughts from last night? I thought it was a really great game. FAU actually led this game by seven at the half, mm-hmm. and it was just a great comeback by San Diego State in the second half. Um, and it seems like looking back at the stats that San Diego State actually had, they, they were up by 10% in three-point shooting Yeah, um, than FAU, and I think that's what really helped them come back mm-hmm. and led to that game-winning jumper. Yeah, before that Final Four game, my favorite game in this tournament was number three, Gonzaga, beating number two, UCLA, because that game-winning deep three from Gonzaga. Yes. Get rid of that. This was the best game in this NCAA tournament. Florida Atlantic versus San Diego State. That Lamont Butler game-winning shot as the clock expired was incredible. The Aztecs, they kind of put themselves in a bad position. They were down by 14 points in the second half, and they were just terrible from the free uh, the free throw line, shooting 13 for 22. Matt Bradley had a great game. Unfortunate for me because I had San Diego State minus 2.5. They Oof. won by 1, but I did predict them to Oof. win, so I am happy I at least got my prediction right. That's why you take the money lines, my friend. That's why you just take the money yes, lines. More, more value in the spread, man. More value in the spread. Well, you don't have value because your bet didn't hit. Well, yeah, hindsight's 20 <laughs> but... I felt good. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Florida Atlantic, they came to play as they have this entire tournament. Yeah, this was probably my favorite game of the tournament, too, Jake. I agree. Before that, it was Gonzaga and UCLA. I think that's a fun rivalry. But, no, this game, say, uh, sorry, Florida Atlantic, they had just had an eight- or nine-point lead the entire time, and they just couldn't put them away. It got to the point with, like, six minutes left in the game, they were up seven, and then all of a sudden... Uh, San Diego State hit a three-pointer, cut it to four, and at that point I knew, okay, we have ourselves a ball game. Uh, Florida Atlantic had every opportunity in the world to become the greatest Cinderella story ever, to have a nine-seed go to the national championship. They couldn't close out. I mean, Elijah Martin had the game of his life last night uh, for FAU. He 26.7 rebounds in just 29 minutes. I mean, he played phenomenal. You got to feel for those kids because, like, would. CBS did the camera of like camera shots on the bench when that buzzer beater went in. Like you couldn't but help but just you you saw the heartbreak on those kids, man. It was so unfortunate. 
Yeah, I hate those shots. It makes you feel so bad for the one team. And while the other team is storming onto the court, storming Lamont Butler as he made that game-winning shot, it's just you you are so happy and excited for one team, but yet so depressed and unhappy for the other team at the same exact time. And you mentioned at Florida Atlantic, they had the perfect storybook written in their hands, a number nine seed going to the national championship game. And something for Florida Atlantic I noticed in this game is just their ability to make contested shots. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Like there are shots I I know they were shooting and I'm like, there's no chance that's going in. Why are they even shooting that shot? And swish. Every single time was, just blew my mind. No, there was one of I think it was Elijah Martin. He was in the first half. He was driving baseline, and he went up for a layup, and I'm like, okay, there's no way he gets this in because there were three uh, FAU players in the – three San Diego State players in the paint. He went up and under and hit the most absurd reverse layup I had ever seen in my life. It was just – it was a great game all around. You could tell, like – they were the team of destiny. Everything for them was going in. They just didn't capitalize on their chances to put them away. If they went up by 12 at just one point in that game, we could be sitting here with an entirely different NCAA championship matchup. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, but let's get into the, you know, the last exciting game of the night, the later game. It was, nope, number five seed Miami against UConn, who's a four seed. And UConn won 72-59. to UConn, they seemed in control the entire night. They had a double-digit lead at halftime. They kept it in the second half, and now they're going to the national championship. Your guys' thoughts on the game? Yeah, it was a very lopsided first half. And, yeah, as you were saying, Matt, this just plays a, that just played a huge role. Second half was a lot closer. It actually, it was... Uh, the, they both scored 35 points. Yeah, they tied each other in the second half. I know my, uh, Miami came out desperate in that second half. Yeah, they were, but it ultimately did not prove to be enough for Miami. Nope. And uh, yeah, and uh, UConn actually shot nearly 50 percent from the field, while Miami shot just 32 percent. Yeah, Jake, anything from you? Yeah, the only bad thing for the Huskies, they went 7 for 13 from the free throw line and committed 15 turnovers, but were dominant everywhere else in this game. You guys mentioned it. They never trailed in the game itself. Hopefully I'm pronouncing this name right, but Adama Sinagu? Sonogo, Sonogo. I think that's that's the phonic spelling. Yeah, he had a great game, had a double-double, 21 points, 10 rebounds, 9 for 11 shooting, so a very efficient double-double. Oh, he was was dominant in the paint. Oh, yeah. Like an Enrique Freeman type of performance in the MAC, 21 and 10. I mean, it was a great game for the Huskies, and they have just been dominant this entire tournament. Very Evan Mobley-esque. Yeah, there you go. I think that's the uh, proper phase. But, yeah, you know, Miami, they just... They didn't have scoring options. Their leading score was Isaiah Wong with 15 points, and their second score was Jordan Miller with 11. They only had two guys in double figures, and the bench really didn't help them at all. It was those two against UConn, and it, uh, and then we have UConn going to the national championship. Second time ever. Second time ever the Huskies are. Yeah, they're usually dominant in women's basketball. This is the year they make it again to the men's tournament. I think, ironically, the last time they won... They, so they've only been to the national championship once, and it was when they won it. And I think the year after that's what started the women's dynasty, where the women's team just win, won it every year. So, if UConn wins, do, does history repeat itself here on the women's side? Who knows? Could. But, you know, we have the national championship game tomorrow night, Monday night, San Diego State against UConn. Give me your guys' early predictions. Who do you think is going to be the NCAA champion? I think it's going to be close, but give me UConn. I think they performed better this in this tournament. I like it. 
UConn has won games by 24, 15, 23, 28, and 13 in this year's tournament. Both teams aren't excellent from the free throw line. UConn has been the team to beat since their huge win over Gonzaga. I predicted the last two elite eight games right, the final four games right, and now the Huskies are going to prove me right once again in the national championship game. I picked them last week on Sports Power Talk. I'm picking them again this week on Sports Power Talk. Give me UConn. And actually, I think they're going to get it done pretty pretty uh, decisively here. Are you going to take the money line or the spread this time? I think I learned my lesson, Matt. So I, I think I'm going to hammer the money line. All right. Hammer the money line. There we go. Um, <laughs> Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was on with Alex and Logan, and we were previewing the Sweet 16 mashup, and I said the winner of the Alabama-San Diego State game is going to win the national championship. San Diego State beat Alabama. I told Sava this in the preview. I'm going to stand by what I said two weeks ago, March 19th. San Diego State is going to upset UConn tomorrow night, and they will become the national champions in the NCAA men's tournament. Wow. See, I said the same thing about Gonzaga and UConn. I thought whoever was going to win that game had an easy path to winning the national championship. And unfortunately for Gonzaga, you know, they're always the number one seed. I've always picked them in my bracket, never really paying off for they, me. They are the Notre Dame of college basketball, and I say exactly. that as a Notre Dame football fan. Yeah, they really, really are. And for a year like this where there are no number one seeds in the Elite Eight or further, this was really Gonzaga's year to break out and win the national championship game. And once UConn just had their way with them, mm-hmm. I've been on the Huskies ever since. Fair enough, fair enough. So we got two picks for UConn, two, uh, myself going with San Diego State. Uh, but let's get into the women's tournament. We had the women's Final Four on Friday night. Uh, first game we had was three-seed LSU against one-seed Virginia Tech, and LSU took the game 79-72. to Your guys' initial thoughts? I thought it was a good game, and I like to see that a one seed did not make it. This is how I am. I don't like seeing one season championship games. This is how it is in any sport. Well, this is the first time in the uh, women's tournament that a one seed hasn't been in the national championship. So, like today at three thirty is going to be the first time ever. Wow! A women's NCAA tournament game will not have a one seed in any capacity. That is crazy to me. I know. It is absolutely crazy. But, yeah, other than that, LSU, it was a little surprising. LSU shot only 23% from three-point, but mm-hmm. they had a great performance, and they were able to beat Virginia Tech. Yeah. Yeah, Alexis Morris had a great game. Angel Reese had a great game. And LSU, they just came out strong in the fourth quarter, outscoring Virginia Tech 29-13 to to get that 79-72 to win. And yeah, talk about, a, the, talk about an incredible performance. I was just yeah. going to touch on that. I mean, they took over in the fourth quarter. They deserve to go to the national championship. Virginia Tech just could not close out, and that's why. I mean, you know, uh, LSU, uh, Alex Alex Morris had a 27-point performance, and Angel Reese had a 24-12 and 12 double-double. I mean, those two players had the games of their life for LSU. As far as Virginia Tech goes, Elizabeth Kitley had an incredible performance, too, with an 18-point, 12-rebound double-double, and she had seven blocks, too. Like, she was doing wow. everything in her power to keep that like to keep Virginia Tech in the lead you got to feel for it too you got to feel for it cuz she had the game of her life uh, but we'll get into the other game uh, two seed Iowa versus one seed South Carolina now I know I kind of spoiled this in the last segment Iowa Iowa beats South Carolina uh, 77 to 73 and this probably was the best g- before the San Diego State game, this was probably my favorite game to watch of the entire weekend because this was an evenly matched game the entire time. I'll get your guys' thoughts first. 
Yeah, it was a great game, and perfection is no more for South Carolina. Yeah, they went into this game 35-0. and I know, it's, that's absolutely crazy. Uh, I have loved what we've seen out of Caitlin Clark. Oh I think she is bringing attention to women's basketball. Yes. And she scored like 40 points, 41 points in that game. Yeah, so, uh, la- uh, Friday night, sorry. She had 41 points, 8 assists, and 6 rebounds in only 31 minutes. That's unbelievable. It just incredible, incredible efficiency. And in the Sweet 16, she was the first player in NCAA tournament history to have a 40-point triple-double. Like, this is this is a girl on a mission here. Uh, Jake, I'll throw it to you. Any thoughts on the Iowa-South Carolina game? Yeah, it was the Caitlin Clark show. Excuse me. It was just dominance from her 41 points in this game to upset South Carolina, who, as you guys mentioned, was going into this game unbeaten, hopefully going on to win the national championship. The Hawkeyes said, no, we have a different plan in order. Caitlin Clark going out there and really just bringing a spotlight to women's basketball in this tournament. And now it's giving people more reason to watch today at 3.30 this national championship game. Yeah, I mean... What an incredible performance from Caitlin Clark again. I do want to touch on South Carolina. Uh, Zia Cook, she is a Toledo native. Uh, she was the leading scorer for South Carolina. She had 24 points and 8 rebounds. But again, Caitlin Clark is just a woman on a mission. I think I would go as far as to say she is the best collegiate athlete in America right now. All sports, hands down, she is the best overall athlete in college athletics. Yeah, It's a hot take, but I think it's... A correct take. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and just what she's doing with women's basketball as a whole. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've all probably done it when ESPN or another network will post something about women's basketball. If for some reason you decided to read the comments, it's just a bunch, it's a bunch of negativity and it's a bunch of just very sexist and misogynistic comments. But when you look at something about Caitlin Clark, it's it's really like it's actually positive stuff on social media which is very rare like she is transcending the way people look at women's basketball and i really love this for her and for the sport she is probably she is arguably the most influential athlete so far of this decade i know it's only three years in but what she's doing for women's athletics right now cannot be understated Yeah, I couldn't agree more. She's empowering the sport. She's empowering people to pay attention to women's basketball. And like you said, with those social media comments, I was the same way. I look at them, and you just see people proud of her performance and just happy to actually tune in and watch these games, which is something that can't be said Mm -hmm. about women's college basketball in a very, very long time. And so, actually, the women's Final Four had 2.5 million viewers, which topped the highest-rated NBA game on ESPN for this year. It outdid the so the highest rated NBA game on ESPN this year was 2.3 million. Uh, Friday's game is 2.5 million. Like people are watching Caitlin Clark. It's it's phenomenal to see. I'm I'm glad society's finally coming around to appreciating women's athletics. A uh, great story. But let's predict the national championship game, guys. At 3:30 today, Iowa will take on LSU. Who's your pick? I think it's going to be a Caitlin Clark show. Give me Iowa, Jake. Yeah, obviously LSU's biggest priority should be slowing down Caitlin Clark, but no other team has figured her out. The story of this entire tournament, though, has been Caitlin Clark of the Iowa Hawkeyes. It kind of reminds me back in 2020 in college football when the entire story of that season was Joe Burrow leading LSU to a national championship game. The story was Joe Burrow. The story of this tournament now is Caitlin Clark, and I think a national championship for the Hawkeyes is inevitable as it was in 2020 for LSU and Joe Burrow. Yeah, I will 
uh, I will spare you all time. Caitlin Clark, she's going to take over today. She's going to get herself a ring, and she's going to be the most talked about college athlete in America. And I'm really looking forward to watching this game today. Yeah, as am I. And I hope she kind of has a lasting effect on this board as well. Hopefully it's not just the Caitlin Clark show. She'll go off to the WNBA. We might follow her a little bit there, and then it's just in the past. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there is a lasting effect here on women's college basketball. I agree completely. Uh, and that concludes our college basketball discussion. Now it's time for Hot Mike, where we answer your questions live on air. Our first question comes from our promotions director, Logan Congrove, and he asks, what's your least favorite thing that you have to do on the daily? I would say class or work. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, just stress out about things. I'm constantly in a stressful state of mind about everything going on in life, especially right now, graduating in about a month's time. But yeah, I, I would probably say just like classwork, homework makes the most sense to me. Crazy. Uh, both valid answers. I, I, I guess I kind of have to pick the same thing here. Uh, if Logan asked this question in like June, maybe we'd have a different answer. But yeah, I mean, we're all college students. Final week, uh, finals are a month out. So that's that's my answer too. Uh, our next question comes from Aaliyah Craig. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Pizza. Okay. It's a good option. Ooh. This is tough because do you think about like what you could actually live on or do you just say, nah, just give me what I enjoy most? If I'm giving me what I enjoy most, I'll go ice cream. Okay. That's my answer. Oh, boy. You're not going to have, like, functioning arteries. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, if I enjoy ice cream the most, so I'd say that. But if, like... Now, like, what what kind of ice cream do you like? Because I know food with you is, like, very... It's a very niche subject up here. Whenever we get your food takes, sure. it's very... Yeah, they're, Kind like, of chaotic, There are, yeah. like, four things that I don't like that make me not american But I am the way I am. In terms of ice cream, like, the one thing I don't like is chocolate and peanut butter together. So, like, that's oh, the one on. thing that I need to stay away from for oh, ice cream. But on, other than man. that... I'm pretty open to other things. I don't like caramel. So that's a big one okay, for me. Okay, so yeah, you just you just don't like ice cream. No, I love ice cream. I just said I love ice cream. But like, how can you? But like, if if you don't like caramel, chocolate, or peanut butter in any combination, what ice cream do you eat? Do you just eat like plain vanilla or strawberry? No. Like, no, do you I have don't like, like strawberry either? Do you have like okay? Do you have like cookie dough? Do you have like you can't eat moose tracks because there's caramel and chocolate in that? Cookie dough is not a bad option. I like chocolate ice cream. I like brownie. I like fudge. Um, yeah, any kind of marshmallow, any kind of that variety. I'm all for it. I learn something new about you every time. What's I'm wrong with that? With What's wrong with like a Oreo too? I mean, anything like that in there? I'm all about it. Okay, so like cookies and like brownie stuff. Fair. I mean. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, and then Pat Weber asks us to give us our biggest anti-Kent rants. Well, they can't write, they can't read, and, and their sports teams are hard to watch. Jake, anything from you? This is a tough question, man. I know. This is like not the, the SBT sp- crew for this question. I know. Like he's like putting us on the spot to go on this like unhinged tangent. Like I'm reading these for the first time now. I I didn't have anything prepared. Right. Like there's nothing to say right now about Ken, about Kent State. Like they. Like I mean, they're guys. Guess what? I hate to say it. They're better than us right now. They're the defending MAC champions. Like they are. They beat us there. Our football team is trash. It's going to continue being trash. Like what do you want me to say? bad about Kent State when we certainly don't have it figured out here at Akron. Well, yeah. we are worse, but 
we can in spirit think that we're better than them. Yes, we, that's, <laughs> I mean, the, every that's time the Northeast it's ga- Ohio mindset. Listen, every time it's game day against Kent, I'm like, let's win by 100, and then we lose by, like, 40. And it's just like, ugh. I that think is, that spirit is the only thing keeping Pat Weber alive right now. That is now. the Northeast Ohio mindset. We might be one of the most inferior regions of the country, but if you tell us that, we will... Win in spirit. We, we will go after you. <laughs> yeah. We will go after you. Um... The next string of questions, Jake, they come from your fan on Twitter. Uh, Jake Murdergoat, his first question is, how is your March? Busy. I mean, the first couple of weeks with the MAC tournament, that was all busy. Kind of, you know, spring. It was just very, a tale of two months. Like, the first half of the month was very busy with the MAC tournament, obviously getting into the NCAA tournament as well. Second half, we had spring training in there. I got my wisdom teeth out, so that was a little bit of a lull. And now we're getting into April, just back on the horse, busy last month of the semester. Oh, yeah. Dad. It's been a great month. Uh, I got to host the first time during a pregame show for the Zips during the MAC tournament. Nice. And, oh, I listened to that, yeah. yeah I listened I, during our meeting. We were in a production <laughs> meeting. You and Alex got to leave. Yeah. I had my AirPods in, and I was listening. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for listening. And You're then welcome. I turned 21 over spring break. Oh, so. good for you, man. Yeah. I know you had a good time. Yeah, it was great. Good for you. Uh, my March, again, Jake, just like you said, it's kind of a tale of – Two separate months in itself. Uh, really busy at the end. Spring break was nice. Uh, then I started doing a bunch of interviews for a potential internship, and I'm still going on with the interview process. So, uh, well, Best of luck to you. Thank you, man. Chaotic as all can be right now up here <laughs> at uh, 88.1. Uh, Jake Murnigut's next question. Have you played the new MLB The Show? And if so, how are you liking it? I have not played that. Okay, I, Jake, I know you have, so I'll, this oh, yeah. is your this is your time. <laughs> I have put hours into this game already, and I don't mean just a couple hours. I mean a lot of hours into it will be the show. It's one of my favorite games to play, just video games in general. I think it's the best sport game out there. I really enjoy it. And MLB The Show 23, there's something special about it. They added new bat sounds. Hitting is more complex, but also a little bit easier, I find it. I'm enjoying it. There's nothing I would rather do more right now they just play hours of MLB The Show, but of course, life takes priority over that. Right. I'm really enjoying it. They added some Negro League storylines in there. Mm-hmm. I haven't touched that yet. I just get so easily addicted to Diamond Dynasty. I love MLB The Show 23 so far. Now, Jake, believe it or not, I know like when I first came up here, I knew I told you like I, baseball wasn't my thing until like last year when I started liking it. I absolutely love playing MLB The Show. I have not bought one since uh, the show 21. Uh, given the rave reviews about it from my friends up here, I, I might have to pick it up this summer. But Yeah, you should. And something like it's weird to say, but my baseball knowledge and how much I love baseball is kind of fueled by two obscure things. One, MLB The Show 23, because mm-hmm. I play it so much I get familiar with some names that most people no, are unfamiliar no, it's, with. It's exactly how, like, the Madden arcs are. I mean, like, there's exactly. nothing wrong with, like, you know, you, it's there's nothing wrong with learning rosters from video games. Yeah, so one is video game, MLB The Show 23, and the other, I love fantasy baseball. So fantasy baseball, those two things combined, kind of just gives me that extra edge when it comes to talking about baseball. I can't say I've ever tried fantasy baseball. My roommate's a big baseball guy. So much fun. Every day he's like, check out my fantasy lineup today. And I'm like, man, I have no idea what I'm looking at, but good for you. Uh, Jake Murnigot, his next question. What's more impressive, hitting the cycle or having two, two home runs, a single, and a double? I think two home runs, a single, and a double is more impressive than the cycle. Even though the cycle might be more rare, I guess you could say, I think it's more impressive because you're driving more runs that way. Fair enough. It has to be the cycle. I would agree. It has to be. 
I mean, there's an argument to be made out there that getting a triple is more difficult than hitting a home run. Oh, I, I would completely agree with so. that notion. I mean, I think a lot of what baseball has been in the 2010s was home runs, doubles, and strikeouts. Yeah, and there's no term for hitting two home runs, a single, and a double. There's a term for hitting the cycle because it is such a rare rare. accomplishment to get a cycle. Yeah. All right, and Jake Murnigoat, one of his next questions. First player that comes to your mind when I say Baltimore Orioles. My first player, and this is crazy because I haven't really paid attention to Baltimore, is Manny Machado when he was back on when he was in Baltimore. <laughs> that's the that's the exact same name that came to my mind. I re- like they've been so bad for yeah. so long. I really I'm, I'm I'm not familiar with their roster. I'm sorry. I know they're supposed to be good this year in the AL East, but you know. they're definitely on their way up. I'm going to go Adley Rutschman. He's kind of the not the face of the franchise. That still goes to Cedric Mullins, I think. But Adley Rutschman is certainly the future of the Baltimore Orioles franchise. I'd probably say him. But I'm kind of curious what Jake Goat's getting at here. Because every single week he's saying, first player that comes to mind when I say this team. I don't know if he's building like a, a roster with our prediction or our picks. I'm not sure. I don't know. Don't give him any ideas. Uh, but uh, his final question. How have you guys liked the new MLB rules for the first few games we've had? Now, we're going to touch on this a little bit in segment four, so save your answer kind of conservatively here, gentlemen. I think it's okay. I initially was really reluctant about it back in spring training, but Mm -hmm. it's okay. Jake? I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, I'll get more into why later on, but the two-hour games, I can get behind it. I completely agree. I absolutely love the introduction of the pitch clock. And like I said, we'll talk about that more in segment four. Uh, That concludes it for our first hour of the show. Uh, We'll be back in a couple minutes with our second hour. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, their game Friday with the New York Knicks, and and going in-depth on the Cavs-Knicks playoff series when we return. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everyone, to Sports Power Talk. We are in the final hour of the show, and we are going to be talking exclusively about the Cleveland Cavaliers and their playoff matchup with the New York Knicks. But first, they played the regular season Friday night, and the Cavs lost 130-116. Dev, Jake, your guys' thoughts from Friday night's game? Yeah, it was a very strong first quarter out of the Cavs. And honestly, after the end of the first quarter, they just came out flat. I don't know what happened. I mean, the score at the end of the first quarter was 47-42. The Cavs led it. It was a chaotic first quarter. Jalen Brunson had 20 in the first. It was chaotic as all could be. Yeah, and Brunson finished with 48, a career yeah, high for him. career high, yeah. And if you're, you know, it's not confirmed yet, Cavs, Knicks in the playoffs, but it certainly is looking to pan out that way. Mm -hmm. And you see a regular season matchup this close to the playoffs between the Cavs and Knicks and a 130 to 116 final score. You kind of start to worry a little bit until you dig a little bit more into it. So the Knicks, of course, were without Julius Randle, which like, oh, oh no, the Cavs, they lost by 14 in a high scoring game and the Knicks were still without Julius Randle, but the Mm -hmm. Cavs. They were without Jarrett Allen and Isaac Okoro. I know Okoro isn't this huge piece on the Cavs, but Jarrett Allen certainly is. We could have used his perimeter, his defense in the paint in this game. Evan Mobley was, of course, playing the five. I think there was a lot. I don't know if there's a lot in this game that you can use to break down a playoff series between these two teams. No, I agree completely, and I want to uh, hit back a little bit. You know, you said Okoro might not be necessarily a big piece on this team. I think, if anything, Friday showed how important he can be to this team. I mean, because typically, 
you're not going to throw Garland or Mitchell on Brunson. Like, that would be a Coro's responsibility. And Brunson just ate Garland and ate Mitchell alive. And they put Lamar Stevens on him at some points, too. And it's, there was just no answer for him. Now, I also attribute some of that to him just having the game of his life. But, you know, I, I think Okoro showed his value today. And I think that opened my eyes a lot to what Isaac Okoro brings to this team. Yeah, he's good for a three or two a game. Not much else other than that. He does get to the free throw line somewhat consistently. But, of course, that defensive presence is certainly there. What I kind of said meant by that is... You have Julius Randle and Jarrett Allen out for both squads in this mm-hmm. game. Isaac Okoro is not going to stack up to those guys in terms of the level of importance and significance that they bring to their team, but certainly a piece that you know the Cavs can use very well. And, of course, Okoro is a starter on this team for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dev, you have anything else from the game? Yeah, I think uh, it just pretty much shocked me that uh, how it ended up finishing with the Cavs only scoring. They, only, they were in the teens. In the fourth quarter. Yeah, it was that, a really ugly fourth quarter performance. what I didn't like to see. They only scored 14 points in the fourth quarter. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Jake, you touched on it. Jalen Brunson, career high, 48 points. He was 18 of 32 from the field and uh, 7 of 12 from behind the arc, and he had nine assists as well. Donovan Mitchell had 42 points. That was his 11th 40-point game of the season. Uh, he was uh, 16 of 23 from the field and 6 of 9 from three. Uh, and then a fun stat I saw about Donovan Mitchell. When he was traded to the Cavs, he only had eight 40-point games in his entire career. And he had his 11th on Friday night. Yeah, that's kind of incredible to think because you would think the Cavs roster right now is better than the Jazz roster any year that the Jazz had Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I just thought that was a really fun stat to pull away. I, know. I just wanted to incorporate that somehow. But, guys, let's talk about a potential Cavs-Knicks playoff series. Now, uh, of course, it, the standings are not finalized yet. The Cavs have not clinched uh, the fourth seed. Uh, they There's an outside shot. They still get the three seed. That's incredibly unlikely. But uh, if the Cavs and Knicks were to match up in the playoff series, uh, Julius Randle will be reevaluated from a – ankle injury in two weeks now this lines up with he will be evaluated basically the day before game one of this potential series whether that be a saturday the 15th or sunday the 16th uh, so what do you guys think this julius randall injury could do to this potential series outcome if he doesn't play it could be it could really help benefit the Cavs. i think a lot like mm-hmm. i think i think we might be talking about like five games i I Cavs love the win. optimism there. A nice gentleman sweep, win at home. I think there's no chance Randall does not play against the Cavs in the playoffs, and, and that, especially in that first game as well. I know he's going to be reevaluated close to that first game. I have him being reevaluated on April 12th, the first round of the playoff star on April 15th. Okay, it'd be the, I, yeah, it'd be the okay, yeah, the Wednesday before, right, right? Yeah, I think there's enough time there to work him back in. Of course, I'm not expecting primetime Julius Randle in that first game, but his presence alone is going to draw attention from this Cavs squad, which opens up so many other things for the Knicks, especially offensively with Jalen Brunson, who mm-hmm. we just talked about had a career high against yeah, the Cavs yeah. the other night. Yeah, no, Randle on the year, he's averaging 25 points, 11 rebounds, 4 assists, obviously. I... If you know anything about Tom Thibodeau basketball teams, if you dress for him, you are playing at least 40 minutes a night. He does not care. Uh, both Thibodeau and J.B. Bickerstaff love to play their starters and just like grind them to a pulp. So I think this is going to be a really fun potential series. Uh, so let's say if Randall were not to play, who do you think would be 
which Knicks player would pose the biggest threat to the Cavs in this series, though, if Randall is not either 100% or could not play? I would say Jalen Brunson, just after what we saw last night, Mm -hmm. putting up nearly 50 points. I would just be a little worried about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only answer here is Jalen Brunson. He's had Donovan Mitchell's number since last year's playoffs. He's coming off that career game against the Knicks, or the Cavs, excuse me, on the road. Who knows what type of condition Randall will be in? Jalen Brunson is going to be the guy to worry about and to focus on if you're the Cavs. And hopefully, like you said, Matt, the addition of Isaac Okoro back into the lineup, hopefully he can do something to tame Jalen Brunson in the playoffs. Now, I have a different answer for that because I'm assuming Okoro will be back for the playoffs. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a certainty he'll be healthy by then. I think Quentin Grimes, he's their shooting guard. He has stepped up big since Randall uh, went down with an injury. Since Randall's been out, he's averaging 19.6. Uh, and if you know Grimes has, you know, he's uh, acclimated himself into that uh, number two spot for the New York Knicks. So even if Randall's not 100%, they can trust Grimes because he's, uh, you know, he, he's hot right now. Yeah, I, I think the Knicks are deceptively deep. And, you know, like, yeah. like the Cavs, we're Cavs fans, so we know their roster more than we know the Knicks roster. And we know the Cavs, 1 through 10, are a relatively deep team. Mm-hmm. The Knicks, you kind of don't feel that. You feel like, okay, that they're top-heavy with Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle. They got Josh Hart coming off the bench. That's a great piece there. Yeah, they got Obi Toppin at the 4. Sometimes right. he slides off the bench. R.J. Barrett there yeah. in the starting lineup as well. But after that, it's kind of like a lost start of saying, okay, who else is on that team? Mm-hmm. They're actually pretty good. They're they're a fifth seed in the East for a reason, and a guy like Grimes could have a stellar game or two in the playoffs. Yeah, and you know the New York Knicks. I mean, obviously they're the biggest market. They're from New York. They have been hyped up so much about like winning a potential playoff series with the Cavs. And I I just don't know if that's an accurate thing to say because the last time we saw New York in the playoffs, Trey Young beat them in five. Yeah, like I, I like I know like this Cavs team. I know they have. They 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 have no playoff experience, but this this Knicks team, the last time they went out ugly, they went out ugly in the playoffs. I think it's just the storylines going into it with the Donovan Mitchell and Jalen Brunson kind of rivalry they built ever since last year's playoffs, and of course Donovan Mitchell was expected to go to the Knicks first originally yeah. in last year's offseason. So there's kind of a tension here between the Cavs and Knicks that I'm really expecting this to be the go-to series for a lot of NBA wa- viewers out there to watch in the first round of the playoffs. I think yeah. that, I'm sorry, I keep no, cutting go ahead. you off, no, go ahead, man. Go but ahead. I think that, and I think because the Cavs have hung around in a lot of games this season, I think it's going to be a really good series to watch. Oh, four, uh, four or five matchups are always so much fun to yeah. watch. I, th- this, I hope they give this one some primetime games, and they don't necessarily give them all to, I don't know, the one-versus-eight games, because yeah. this, this will be one heck of a series uh but you know this Cavs team no playoff experience they uh injuries decimated them last season they fell out of the top six into the play-in where they lost to the Nets and they lost to the Hawks and they were sent home before they could get a playoff series under their belt so I have to ask you guys uh which Cavs player or players most concern you uh when we start the playoffs in two weeks I have Darius Garland here and it hates me to say it, but some of his best scoring nights are poor shooting nights. So he's filling up the bucket, but he's also not doing it very efficiently. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to be lost behind Mitchell's takeover in the playoffs. Because I'm fully expecting Donovan Mitchell to be the leader that he has all season long. 
go out there in the NBA playoffs against a Knicks team likely that he was supposed to go to and play his heart off. I don't. I just don't want to have Garland be lost behind that storyline. We need Garland to be just as good, if not a better secondary scorer to Mitchell than Brunson will be to Randall in the first series. Garland does give me concern heading into the playoffs. I agree with... Before I get into mine, Devin, who's your Cavs player you're concerned about? Yeah, Darius Garland and Evan Mobley. Um, Evan right. Mobley this season has not really done very well against the Knicks in the four, ma- in the four matchups mm-hmm. against them. So he just he concerns me a little bit, and I agree with what you were saying, uh, Jake, as well. Yeah, uh, we'll go three for three here. Darius Garland is the Cavs player I'm concerned about the most, and that you know that pains me to say. I'm, I mean, I'm going to be going to the game tonight wearing his jersey. He is my favorite Cavs player. Uh, but, you know, he's an undersized guard. Now, that might not necessarily be the biggest problem against the New York Knicks because Brunson and Grimes are also fairly undersized guards. Uh, but in, in a potential round two series against a Milwaukee or Boston, remember how the Cavs kind of played bully ball with Steph Curry? It was pick and roll. Whoever Steph was guarding, they would set the screen, and then they get Steph on LeBron. I don't see why this would be any different if the Cavs were to make it to round two. And just going against how Garland would do against the Knicks, he has incredibly bad turnovers at incredibly bad times. And it also, his scoring efficiency, it's just so inconsistent. Look at Friday, for example. He only had two turnovers, but those two turnovers came in the fourth quarter when you were you know trying to battle back, when you were down single digits. You know, it's, I, I, I really want my favorite player to perform well in the playoffs. But he is my biggest question mark on this Cavs team. Uh, but on a more positive note, or maybe not positive, but just in terms of expectations, which Cavs player do you have the highest expectations for come this postseason? I think Donovan Mitchell is going to have a great postseason. And that's yeah. who I have a lot right. of expectations. Yeah, I mean, that's my answer as well. Donovan Mitchell, I think he can play selfishly at times, but he is our leader. He's going to be playing selfishly, especially down the stretch. That's just the player that Donovan Mitchell is. He's going to be motivated to beat Brunson in the Knicks, which was the team he was originally rumored to go to last offseason. I easily expect like 30 points per game or more out of Donovan Mitchell come the first series against the Knicks. Yeah, I completely understand the Donovan Mitchell takes here because, you know, he is the Cavs' best player. Uh, But, you know, what's always been the notion around this Cavs team? Like, if they're going to be a true title contender, who has to be the best player on the team? Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley is the player I'm expecting the most out of for this Cavs team. It's Again, it's the tale as old as time. We've been saying it since he was drafted. This Cavs team will be a finals contender when Evan Mobley is the best player. And he can prove it. He's going to be matched up against a banged-up Julius Randle and an Obi Toppin who just cannot hang with him. Jared Allen can take a lot of the pressure off of him defensively. I need a big series out of Evan Mobley. I need him to show the world what he can be. And I I think Evan Mobley is one of those players that are just, once he hits the playoffs, he is going to just grow exponentially in just terms of his potential. So I'm really excited to see what Evan Mobley can do once the playoffs roll around. I'm all about the Evan Mobley hype train. I just don't know if he's going to flip that switch just because the playoffs are starting. Like this entire year, he's gone on stretches where he's had great games, especially when Donovan Mitchell has missed some time. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the Donovan Mitchell show. And I love when this cast team prioritizes their big men and uses their offense and or runs their offense through Evan Mobley and Jarrett Allen down low. 
I just don't see that being the priority heading into a postseason matchup against the New York Knicks. You know, you said like he hasn't flipped the switch. I kind of disagree. I think uh, I, like January, Kendrick Perkins put out some like absolutely absurd statement where like Evan Mobley doesn't impact games or anything. Uh, and since and since then, Evan Mobley's had the two best month best months of his season. Uh, in February, he's averaging nineteen and nine with a block per game, and in March, he's averaging eighteen ten with over two blocks per game. Like I, I really think he stepped up, and I think the switch has already kind of been flipped, and I think the playoffs are really just going to just show that to pretty. Like I'm not saying you're doubting him, but I think it's going to show it's going to show that to Cavs fans and to the to a national audience. Yeah, I hope so. I just think in terms of who you're expecting more out of in the postseason, it's got to be Donovan Mitchell. Although I would love. To see Evan Mobley go again, out there and have some great games. Again, it's always the debate: can can Donovan Mitchell be the best player on a championship team? And I don't know if the answer is yes. Like, like Evan Mobley is, he's going to carry the Cavs to their truest potential, and I think that's that's why you drafted him. He's a unicorn prospect. I, I I'm I'm sorry. I I just think Evan Mobley. He's the future of the franchise, and I I have very high expectations for him. I hope I'm right. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm worried about it just because how he's played against the, the Knicks this mm-hmm. season. But, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. All right. And now, if, if the Cavs were to get by New York, they would be matched up with either Boston or Milwaukee, assuming they both take care of business. Uh, do you think this Cavs team could give Boston or Milwaukee a fight in round two? I think the Cavs could, could maybe keep it close and get to game six, just because the whole how the season has gone, the Cavs hang around in games. Yeah, so I could see them maybe taking two of the games in the series, but I don't think they would win the series. Jake, how about you? Yeah, there is a world where the Cavs could beat either team in a seven-game series in the playoffs, but I just don't see it happening. I think we match up a little bit better against the Celtics just because Giannis, he's a huge issue along with Lopez and Middleton. They can exploit bad perimeter defense, something that the Cavs have struggled with this season. And the Cavs are 3-1 and one against the Celtics this year, all three wins coming in overtime. I think we could get to a Game 7 against the Celtics, but I really just think the ceiling for this team this year is a second-round playoff exit. Yeah, I, I hate to agree with you there. Uh, I think Milwaukee probably gives us the worst matchup. I, I touched on Darius Garland being an undersized guard. If we played Milwaukee and he has to go against like a, you know, Drew Holiday is a strong, strong guard. He's six three and he's built through like he is. He's a big dude, and Chris Middleton is you know like six foot seven. I don't think that match up well for the Cavs backcourt, uh, let alone front court, because Mobley and Allen would be busy with Giannis, and they can't provide help defense against the length Milwaukee has in the backcourt. I, I do think Boston would be our best matchup. We, we've matched up better with them in the regular season. Jake, like you said, took the series 3-1. But I think just if the Cavs were to just push the series to six games, I think that would show a lot about what this team could be. I, I, like, you know, like, what do you think? If, if they take this team to six games, I would be much more, much more optimistic about this team than if they were to be swept or lost in five. Yeah, I think that's the hope. And when you look at this season, there's three takeaways that I would have if we go to a second round playoff series and lose to a team like the Celtics or the Bucks. Like one, the regular season success. You have to acknowledge that and the playoff appearance without LeBron James on the team, right? That mm-hmm. is a huge accomplishment for the Cleveland Cavaliers organization. 
second Donovan Mitchell. He's a star. He's going to be the face of our franchise for years. And then third, you know, it's okay to be beaten up by a juggernaut in the NBA playoffs in the second round. It's going to give our guys some experience to perform better in the following years, but it's okay if you do get beaten by a team like the Bucks, the Celtics, even the 76ers, even though that matchup isn't likely in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. It's okay, Cavs fans, if you do drop that series. But, of course, being competitive in a series like that would go a long way. You know, I want to yeah. be competitive in that series because I think some Cavs fans are just very vocal about this disdain for J.B. Bickerstaff. And I don't necessarily know why. I think if they were to get swept in round two, I I don't know if that pressure the front office to act irrationally. I like J.B. as a coach. I just I, I want them to compete in round two because it would show me everything's here and we don't need a drastic move. Like, if you look at Golden State, they fired Mark Jackson, brought in Steve Kerr, and then they won all those championships. I don't want JB to be the guy before the guy. I think everything here is in place, and if they can take Boston or Milwaukee to six or even seven somehow, I would be so much more confident in this team going into 2023-2024. Yeah, that's well put. And, you know, Cleveland fans, we love having the debate of who's going to get fired first. Is it going to be J.B. Bickerstaff? Is it going to be J.B.? Is it going to be Tito? Or Andrew Barry? Why can't we just appreciate (laughs) the good things that we have in life? Appreciate J.B. Bickerstaff and what he's done. The Browns have really ruined this town. I mean, J.B. Bickerstaff, remember, uh, Beeline was the head coach. He got fired 20 games into the season. Uh, They kind of just made J.B. the sacrificial lamb to be the, you know, the coach that tanked all those years. And then uh, last year, we unexpectedly were incredible up until, you know, everyone got injured. And, you know, I I think J.B.'s done a great job with his team. I would hate to see some premature action with him, but... Yeah, I would you know, agree with that. Yeah, so I, I really want this team to compete in round two of the playoffs because it it make me so much more confident in this team. Uh, and so that kind of transition transitions us into our Around the Rue question. We bring the show to you. And our Around the Rue this week is, what do the Cavs need to become a true title contender? Uh, guys, let me hear your opinions first. What do the, Ca- what do the Cavs need? to become a serious, bona fide NBA Finals contender? I think it's the experience. Like, these guys have not had any experience in the postseason, except for a handful of them in the play-in tournament last season. So I think they just need the experience, and I think that'll go a long way into helping them get there. Yeah, I also have experience. It's the easiest answer here for me. Not many Cavs players have that playoff experience and have played on the biggest stage in front of a ton of fans on national TV before. I mentioned the takeaways from this season. It's okay to get bounced in the second round, but the experience from doing so mm-hmm. is going to be huge for this team moving forward, and it's going to be huge for this team if they want to become a true title contender like we're talking about right now. Now, you say, like, you bring up the experience, and I think you're right. We only have three players on this roster with playoff yeah. experience. Donovan, Ricky Rubio, and Jetty Osman, because he played those eight minutes in the 2018 Finals Game 4. What an eight minutes uh, that was. When we were down 30 points to the Warriors. Oh, boy. But, yeah, like this team does not have experience. It's kind of crazy that Jetty has the most like impactful <laughs> experience on this roster. Right, and you could argue, argue like better wing play, more perimeter shooting, things like that, that have kind of plagued the Cavs yeah. this season. But if you're going into a playoff series like this, only three players, two of which don't have, like, a dramatic effect on this team, I'd say, you need to develop that playoff experience. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that completely. I also put down, 
Uh, there are a couple other things. I've, the fans have been begging for a new wing on this team. Like, you know, because the rotation between Okoro, Levert, and Dean Wade, it hasn't really been all that efficient. I mean, so like... Again, I don't want the office, the front office, to react too rationally and spend big money on a guy like Chris Middleton or Kyle Kuzma because their contracts are up this summer. But just, just a veteran, an established three that would you know be an upgrade over a Coro. You can put a Coro to more of a situational player. You know, you can truly let Levert be your sixth man off the bench. I think that would alleviate a lot of the issues with this roster. I would love a Chris Middleton man. I know that he's would be gonna, very he's gonna, expensive. Yeah, he's going to be 32, though. It would be expensive, and he does have some injury problems, but I would just love him. And I I love the Donovan Mitchell trade. I'm not saying by any means I think the Cavs should not have done that trade. Mm-hmm. But when we were rumored to do that, and I was all for it. I was like, yeah. the Cavs should trade for Donovan Mitchell. A couple weeks later, the trade happened. The one piece I did not want to give up was Lowry Markkinen. I, I, we brought that up. I was on with Alex and Logan a couple weeks ago, and I brought – no, it was with Pat. It was Alex and Pat I was on. And I, for some reason we got on this topic, and I said, what if we got the Donovan Mitchell trade and gave up Levert instead of Markkinen and just how different this team would be? Yeah. Three seven-footers with Garland and Mitchell. That was it. And we know what the Cavs team looked like with Lowry Markin and, with, and without Donovan Mitchell. We don't need to see that again. I think the trade was a good trade. Yeah. It's just that one piece I did not want to give up last offseason was Lowry Markin because I think the sky is the limit for this young man. And it's crazy to think that he's played for three, I think, NBA franchises so far. Yep. It's wild to think of that, especially at how, a young age that he is. I really would have loved to keep him, but I think Chris Middleton, my point, is that Chris Middleton is kind of an older Lowry Markin, and they kind of play the same way. I know Lowry, yeah. or Chris Middleton's not as aggressive. Yeah, Middleton, yeah, Middleton's more of a guard, but I get it. Their, their roles sure. are the same. They're more of they're, they're not going to be that big of a defensive liability. They're going to they're going to hit their shots when you get them. They can play in the post. They can play on the perimeter. They can do exactly. everything on offense well, and they're not going to hinder you on defense. I get that notion completely. Yeah, exactly, and I would love to see a guy like him fit into this Cavs roster. But again, you got to worry about money, the expense of getting him, the injuries, all that considered. I, he'd mm. probably stay with the Bucks with Giannis, especially yeah. if they make a deep playoff run this year, which is kind of expected, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I would love to see it though. I don't. I, I agree with that notion. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about the NBA playoffs as a whole. The Cleveland Cavaliers this year are not going to be partaking in the NBA play-in tournament. Uh, but we're still going to talk about that a little bit. And the East right now, if the season were to end today, Logan Congrove's favorite team, the Miami Heat, would be playing our super fan Jake Marinagot's favorite team, the Atlanta Hawks. What a matchup! That I would, I would pay. To, I, I would. I'm going to be watching their live tweets the entire night if that's the play-in <laughs> matchup. Who would you guys take in that play-in matchup? Heat versus Atlanta. Well, I think Logan Congrove is going to be celebrating because I think the Heat is going to beat Atlanta. I would agree with that. I would pay to get Jake Murn to go and Logan Congrove in the same room. Can we bring them up for this w- game? Bring them up to WZIP and just watch it in the production room on the big TV. Please, like that oh would my be gosh, so entertaining. That would. Oh my gosh, that'd be one heck of a night. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, Jake Murnigo, but give me a healthy Heat team over the Hawks. Atlanta, they're on a pattern of winning and losing games right now. Miami, they're just a tough out for anyone in the playoffs. I would like them to get a victory in the first round of this play-in tournament. All right, so Miami would be the seventh seed. The 9 versus 10 game, who would you guys take between the Toronto Raptors and Chicago Bulls? Uh, Give me the Raptors. 
I agree, Dev. In an effort not to be boring and picking all the top seeds, give me the Bulls on this one. Chicago, their defense is miserable, but give me DeRozan, Vucevic, and Levine more than anyone on the Raptors squad. I like the Bulls to get it done. I love the Raptors slander. I love it completely. Uh, but with the action, so who would take the final seed then? The Atlanta Hawks or Dev and I have the Hawks versus Raptors. Jake, you have the Hawks versus the uh, Hawks versus Bulls. I'll give it to you first since you're the only one with the Bulls in this. Yeah, I have the Bulls getting here. I don't have the Bulls getting any further. I like the Hawks to beat the Bulls. The Hawks, they lose the first play-in game, then they win the second play-in game. They're very notorious this year for winning and losing games alternatively. Yeah. And the Jonte Murray, Trey Young, they're just unstoppable when they are both playing well together. I would give the Hawks a slight edge over the Bulls. Oh, congratulations, Jake Marnagoat. Your uh, your prize is you get to play the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, rematch <laughs> of the 2021 Eastern Conference Finals. It's not a bad series. Yeah. Uh, Dev, who do you have with the Hawks against the Raptors? Uh, give me the Raptors. Okay, I would take Atlanta in that game. I do like Pascal Siakam a lot for Toronto, but I just think Trey Young is just going to have one of those nights where he just gets absurdly hot. Uh, in the West, uh, seven seed Pelicans versus the eight seed Lakers. Who would you guys favor in that series? Give me the Lakers over whoever they play in the play-in. LeBron James will not be denied in a playing game, no matter who the competition is. I agree completely. I'd take the Lakers as well. How about you, Dev? Yeah, I'd take the Lakers. All right. Timberwolves against the Thunder. I have to take the Timberwolves here. I was so high on the Timberwolves before the season started. I think everybody was, man. Well, I had Minnesota finishing third in the West this year. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So they better get out of the play. They better at least get in the playoffs. Right. I'm taking them over the Thunder. All right, Dev. Give me the Thunder because Minnesota has kind of been disappointing down the stretch. All right. Carl Anthony Towns coming back. All right. All right, Dev. You're the only one with the Pelicans and the Thunder for the final playoff spot. Who would you take there? Uh, Give me the Thunder. All right. Pelicans. Thunder in there. Jake, you have the Pelicans matching up against the Timberwolves. I think I know who you're going with here, but. Timberwolves. Yeah. 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 I'd also take the Timberwolves. Uh, And that brings us to our final NBA topic. Uh, Guys, give me your Eastern Conference and Western Conference winner and give me your championship prediction. I got Boston um, winning the East, and I got Denver winning the West. All right, and then your NBA Finals, who do you have the winner as? I got Denver. Nice. Jake, how about you? This is so hard for me. Last year, it was so easy. I picked the Warriors. I was right. I had them all along. This year, it is wide open to me. The East, I could see the Bucks, Celtics, or 76ers, of course, are the top three seeds. I could see any of those teams going. My blind optimism for the 76ers that I've had all season long continues. I think playoff James Harden dies this season. Give me the 76ers to come out of the East. Then for the West, I have it between the Nuggets, the Suns, and the Warriors. Ooh. Give me Phoenix here. All right. They got KD. You're not wrong. KD man. coming back. I just think they have more star power than Denver. With Kevin Durant, give me the Suns and the 76ers in the finals. Then give me the Suns as your NBA champion. I like it a lot. Uh, In the East, I think this is Milwaukee's conference to lose. I think they take care of Boston in the conference finals in six. In the West, I think it's too inconsistent, and I'm not going to bet against LeBron James. Give me the... (laughs) I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to have the insane Akron bias. Give me LeBron James to make the NBA Finals, but I will take the Milwaukee Bucks to defeat the Los Angeles Lakers in six games. It's crazy that we all, all three of us had different Eastern Conference champions. I love it. I love it, open, I love it a lot. I love it. I love it. That concludes our third segment. We will be back in just a few short minutes. We're going to be talking about Major League Baseball opening day. And of course, 
your beloved Cleveland Guardians. Stay tuned. Do not go anywhere. You won't want to miss the end of our show. Welcome back to the fourth and final segment of Sports Power Talk. My name is Matt Bermuka. I am your host today for the first time. And because I'm a first-time host, I forgot the common courtesy of introducing my analysts the entire show. Gentlemen, I apologize. I completely forgot to do this. It slipped my mind. But joining me on the show is... Jake Marin. And... Dev Lucas. Guys, I'm sorry. You know, I know you guys aren't too mad. It's my first time hosting. It kind of just slipped my mind. But, you know, here we go. Anyway, final segment of the show. Let's close it out strong. We're going to be talking about Major League Baseball and, of course, the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, before we get into the Guardians, Guardians discussion, I want to talk about the introduction of the pitch clock. Uh, you know, it, a controversial thing amongst baseball purists and everything. Uh, guys, I want to get your thoughts on it, Jake. I know you're a big baseball guy, so I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, the Guardians' opening day game was two hours and 15 minutes long. Phenom- the game played last night was two hours and four minutes long. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying this, guys. I like it a lot because, you know, it's 10 o'clock start times, too. Oh, I don't yeah. feel like I'm like, that helps. I, I'm, it's not like a red eye, you know. Yeah, but- that really helps. And you also have to consider that those games were more so pitching duels and these yeah. runs are being scored by no, one or two so hits. Opening opening night, uh, the first inning was the longest one, and it took 13 minutes top to bottom, and that's just because Bieber got a full count a couple times. I mean, right. I, I, I love it. Dev, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I didn't like it at the beginning of spring training. I was like, this is going to be terrible for the game. I Because I'm a fan of, like, the longer games, and I thought it was going to maybe drag it out and kind of, like, force pitchers to make mistakes that they would not normally make. But... I don't know. I like the fast-paced games. I like them a lot. You know, again, we've we've alluded to this before. Like, I wasn't the biggest baseball guy before joining WZIP. Uh, but opening day, I just found myself watching a lot of baseball. So my roommate's a Yankee fan, so, of course, he made me watch uh, the Yankee. I know. He made me watch the Yankee game with him on Thursday. But, you know, like, I, w- I was... I- you know, I was fully interested in it, and then afterwards, I decided I was going to sit down and watch the White Sox Astros, and then I watched the Guardians uh, Mariners up until I fell asleep in the seventh inning, and I woke up the next day and I'm like, Matt, you spent nine hours consecutively watching baseball, and it was, I, I was drawn in because the pitch clock it, it made me know like something's going to happen now, and I felt so I felt more in touch with watching pitchers. I felt more in touch with the game. I really loved it. I thought it, it it greatly sped up the pace of play, and it made it much more exciting. It was, I absolutely love the pitch clock. I didn't think I was. I think it's phenomenal. And that's who the MLB's targeting. They're targeting fans like you, Matt, and trying to bring new fans to the game of baseball like, like I'm, like with I, the pitch clock. I'm a casual Guardians fan, but like if I could, like. And, like, you know, I would know, like, okay, I know this team's good, but I really don't care to watch them because I don't want to waste three hours of my day. Like, if I can watch two World Series contenders on, like, Sunday Night Baseball or another primetime game when the Guardians are off, like, I would not mind that at all. Yeah, I feel like there's four groups of baseball fans. You have your diehards that hate the pitch clock. You have your diehards like me who are kind of enjoying it so far. You have fans that were kind of on the edge if they like baseball or not and are kind of getting pulled in like you are, Matt. And there's Mm -hmm. fans that just aren't fans at all. They just don't like baseball whatsoever. And these rule changes are targeting those type of fans like you, Matt, and trying to bring those fans who, all right, yeah, baseball's okay to watch. It's not the greatest. When the playoffs come around, yeah, I'll tune in to now – Hey, these games are going by in two and a half hours. Yeah, let's tune into a 
regular season game between the Guardians and Mariners. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. it's it's phenomenal. I absolutely love it. Uh, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. But let's first get into our Cleveland Guardians topics. Uh, it came out earlier this week. Tristan McKenzie with an elbow injury could be out anywhere from two to eight weeks. Uh, so. What does this Tristan McKenzie injury do to further rotation, and how would this affect the Cleveland Guardians early on in the season? Well, it's going to hurt because Hunter Gaddis was not the answer on Friday. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Friday night he started. Yeah, yeah, he did not look good at all, and he started a handful of games last season and look good at all. And it also hurts that the the star uh, rookie pitcher last season is also on the six day injury list, Cody Morris. Yeah. He looked amazing last season. He's going to be out. I think until July, they're saying. So he won't even have an impact in the bullpen until then. Just see, no, what this is, we're just going to have a summer renaissance in the bullpen. <laughs> June, McKenzie comes back. Morris comes back in July. And yeah. we just take the Central in August. So no, that, that's how we're looking at it. Summer so renaissance. I'm just really nervous with that. I think they're going to have to kind of utilize either a four-man or they're just going to have to maybe utilize maybe a bullpen game every fifth day because I don't think you can realistically have a starter come out and give a five innings of mm-hmm. good baseball on every you know, fifth night I'm without not, McKenzie. I'm not scared of a bullpen game anymore because Brian Shaw's gone. Yeah. So I, I'd be in favor of a bullpen game. And now, now. James Karinczak is the new Brian Shaw. How about that? Stop. No, Brian Shaw would, no, no. Brian Shaw was there because like he was there for like ten years. He had to have some sort of like terrible blackmail on like Tito or something. Like, there's no way you employ that man to be in the major leagues for ten years, other than he has some serious blackmail on either Francona, Antonetti, or the Dolans. Yeah, it, I feel like the Guardians have always had that one bullpen pitcher. I feel like the, the same thing could be said about any MLB team. Well, I think every every sports he's, he's the Udonis Haslam of the Cleveland Indians sure. Guardians. But I feel like the Guardians, they just always had that one bullpen pitcher where they go out there, they step on the mound, and that entire half inning, you're shaking in your boots. It's, yeah, it's just, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I remember it being Cody Allen back in the day. Like, oh, he was gosh. good, but there were moments where I was legitimately scared every single time he would go in for a save opportunity. Then it was Brian Shaw for a couple of years, and do you now remember, I feel like it's James Karajan. Do you remember when we were, like, decimated with pitching injuries last year and Brian Shaw started a game against the he Red Sox? Won games. <laughs> he, he won. won yeah. He won as a starter. That was absolutely absurd to me. Uh, my favorite thing with Guardians Twitter was, like, whenever he came in, it'd be a meme, and it'd just be, like, a Brian Shaw. Like, it was a terrible photo of him, and it'd just be, it's time for Brian Shaw to pitch. And everyone just collectively got scared. The fact that Brian Shaw won more starting games last year than Mustard won relay races. Yeah. I remember last season, the Guardians were up by, like, I think they were up by six in the White Sox. Brian Shaw comes in, (laughs) gives up, like, four runs, and I'm like, we're going to lose this game. Like, uh, this game is over. I I do remember that game. Someone came in and saved it. Yeah. But it was very scary. I don't know how Brian Shaw got brought up, but, yeah, uh, McKenzie, he'll be out for a bit. You know, it's... It's 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 unfortunate we start the year with uh, such a you know strong schedule. We have two series with the Mariners and the Yankees. Both of these teams are going to be teams we are competing in the uh, in the wild card and just the American League standings alone. So it's unfortunate we're going to miss him for a bit of time there. But at the same time, I always trust this organization to develop pitching. So I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world. Uh, but let's get into something that's kind of rare for Guardians fans, and that's Paul Dolan writing a check and signing a player to a contract extension. Andreas Jimenez signed a seven-year, $106 million contract extension before opening day. Guys, your thoughts? Yeah, it's great. He's going to be a key player for the Guardians for many years to come. 
Yeah, this move came out of nowhere to start the year. It's further proof, if you even needed it, that the Guardians won the Lindor trade yeah. last season, and it was an all-star year for Jimenez. 297 batting average, 69 RBIs, 17 home runs. Hopefully he continues to play at an all-star level, continues to play as a gold-glove second baseman, and continues to play as a threat in the lineup to opposing teams. And I say hopefully, but I have no doubt that he's oh, yeah. going to do those things. He's. It's wild that he's one of our few all-star bats that bats six or I know, seven man. in the cr- lineup. We were talking about that Thursday, like yeah. off air. It's crazy how deep our lineup is, and there's Miles Straw. But but you love it because it gives us that extra production late in the lineup. I know. He serves as a base runner for the top of the lineup. I could see him eventually switching places with him at Rosario, but I really do enjoy him kind of after Josh Naylor right there in mm-hmm. the lineup. Yeah. Because he's not a huge power bat. I mean, I don't no, hit the home run last night. Yeah, he but. gets on base. I mean, look, I, yeah. I, I know people in this organization think he can add some power. If he can get you north of 20 home runs, oh, my gosh, this is incredible value. And you brought up, like, switching with Rosario for him to play shortstop. Like, this contract, they're paying him second base money. But if he is a gold glove shortstop, you look like a genius because you're paying a gold glove shortstop second base money. Yeah, I mean, I was even... I was kind of referencing just in the lineup, their position. Oh, in the sorry, sorry. Yeah, okay. But positions in the field, like, yeah, that's a great point too, Matt. Yeah, and then uh, we also signed someone else to a contract extension. Trevor Steffen, four years, $10 million deal with two club options on the end, each year for $7.5 million. Your guys' thoughts on this move? He has gotten better and better in the bullpen every year he's been on the Guardians. I think the, on one of the nights against the Seattle, he threw in a 110-mile-an-hour fastball. 110? That's what I heard. I, I I know there's something north of 100. I think that'd be the fastest pitch in MLB history. I was hurting it was somewhere in that in that I, ballpark. I thought the fastest pitch on record was 107. If he if he hit 110, I could be totally wrong. On that, right. but I did hear it was somewhere north I, of 100. Yeah, he has some heat. I think he did top triple digits, but I don't think it was a it was an MLB record. Jake, your thoughts on the Stefan extension? Yeah, it's a great deal. It's a team friendly deal. He serves as a setup pitcher to Emmanuel Classe. He was our saver and. This is just a great deal. Like I'm saying, he can give you two innings if needed. That 97-mile-an-hour fastball with good off-speed pitches and his changeup and slider gives you something to work with there. Last season, he was really effective. This season, I expect the same. Yeah, I mean, I I like the move, too. You know, great bullpen arm. And uh, I, I looked at it from this perspective. The club options at the end... It made me think, if this team's going to be a contender at the end of the year, every team's always looking for a bullpen arm. And to have a bullpen pitcher with two club options, I think down the line this could make him a very desirable trade piece. Maybe in a year or two out, if you're really contending for a World Series, a bullpen arm with three years more of club control. That's how I looked at it. I'm I'm not, you know, pounding the table wanting to move him, but like that's how I looked at it. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a good short-term piece, and hopefully he just continues to do what he did last year, and we can keep him in the bullpen in front of Class A. But even that, like you mentioned, Matt, he could serve as a good trade piece if the Guardians do be aggressive, you know, this trade deadline and try and go out there and and get a piece or two. Maybe not even this deadline, but kind of like a couple years down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that makes me to my, bring me, uh, brings me to my next question. If the Guardians are going to be spending some money now, uh, which players do you think they should prioritize extending next? Shane Bieber. I think that's the obvious hands-down answer. Yeah, there are a ton of players on arbitration right now that the Guardians could extend. A ton of choices, but Shane Bieber is the biggest guy to prioritize right now. I trust the Guardians to move on from star aces when they fall. 
but I think Bieber still has a lot to give and like a three-year contract somewhere in that range I think would be amazing to lock Shane Bieber up for a little bit more. That'd be phenomenal. I also agree, but I also, you know, Stephen Kwan, after his five RBI performance Friday, I would love to just lock him up now when he might be cheaper versus what he could potentially hit the market at when he's in his prime. I think it'd be smart to lock him up too. And I think, you know, Ahmed Rosario, I, th- I think that's another one I would prioritize too. Yeah, and Ahmed Rosario kind of going on Twitter little bit deceptive there. I think they might be in contract negotiations right now. Maybe we'll he was, happy, maybe he was happy for his boy Jimenez. Yeah, who knows? We'll see if something gets done between Rosario, but I can also see guys like Cal Quantrill, Tristan McKenzie, Josh Naylor, too. Those are all good options to extend right now. Yeah, uh, so yeah, that brings us, that concludes our topic about, topic about the Guardians off the field. Uh, but their season began Thursday night. They've played three games against Seattle so far. Uh, so, guys, let's break down their opening day game. It was a 3-0 loss. James Karinchak gave up a three-run home run in the bottom of the eighth to tie France. The Guardians didn't rally in the ninth. Uh, the Guardians only had four hits that night, and Bieber had three Ks in six innings with no runs allowed. So what were your takeaways from opening night? I think it shows me that Karinchak is not adjusting well to the pitch clock. He, was a, he works very slowly. Like That's what he did last year. That's what he's known for. And it seemed like he was a lot of times throwing to first base when people were on base in the eighth inning, trying to, like, reset that clock. Yeah. Um, but it was a well-pitched game, though, by the Guardians overall. Just one mistake by Karen Check led to that 3 nothing loss. Jake? I love what I saw out of Shane Bieber in this game. Because oh, yeah. he kept on getting himself into trouble. And but he, he got himself right out. Yeah, managed to get out of it. And that is huge for a starting that's, pitcher. That's what Cy Young winners do. Exactly. That's what Cy Young winners do. You're giving up six hits in six innings. Only three Ks, but you're getting yourself out of those troubling scenarios and giving up zero earned runs in your first start of the year. You love to see that. Luis Castillo was great for the Mariners. But on the topic of James Karinchak, I don't know why he's not adjusting the pitch clock all of a sudden because in spring training, he was doing fine with it. Maybe it's because there weren't thousands of fans at a spring training game, and now he's kind of having to adjust to not only a pitch clock, but also a pitch clock in and and in an enemy atmosphere like Seattle, and those Seattle fans are loud. Last night when Karen Chai came in, they were counting him down. Yeah, yeah. That's probably going to be something we hear just, in opposing games for the future. I just don't know what's going on with Karen Chai right now. If it's a pitch clock, if it's the if it's the away games that's getting to him, maybe a little bit of both right now. You're just hearing a little bit from like Guardians fans on Twitter that were at the game. It did seem like Seattle fans were heckling him, warming up in the bullpen, and then obviously even last night when he was pitching, they were doing the countdown and stuff. They were they got under his skin. Again, it's he's only had two appearances so far. I really don't want to overreact right yeah. now because that's that's the beauty of overreacting three three games into a 162 game season. Uh, but you know, I, I'm not too worried. But there is cause for concern. And uh, I want to see him in a home game too. Oh, like yeah. at home when they when you don't have that atmosphere, I think he, he'll be just fine. Exactly. And let's touch on Friday night's game. They won nine four. They won nine to four. It's their first win of the year. Stephen Kwan had a five RBI performance. Uh, the Guardians rebounded offensively, 13 hits. Uh, Seattle had a couple errors. If you remember, uh, several base running errors. The Guardians capitalized on a couple of wild throws. Uh, Gladys was on the mound for an injured McKenzie. He had four Ks but allowed four runs. And Emmanuel Classe came in to save the day with his first appearance of the season. Honestly, when I saw it was one nothing in the first inning, I was thinking this was going to be a game like the night before where mm-hmm. we only were going to be able to maybe score a run or two. So I'm like, oh, great. He's already given up one run. 
Hunter Gaddis um, last season didn't do well either. And I'm like, this could be bad. And yeah. he didn't have a great outing, but the offense picked him up and they were able to score nine runs. I love what we saw to Stephen Kwan, and I did not expect the Guardians to score anywhere. I didn't even expect them to score more than three runs that day. So mm-hmm. great outing by the yeah, Guardians. I'm, great performance. Yeah. Yeah, you see Robbie Ray take the mound for Seattle. You do not expect to score nine runs against no. a guy. Especially 13 like hits, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, for sure. And Robbie Ray went on the IL yesterday with a left flexor strain, so maybe there's something to that. Mm-hmm. But the Guardians, they took advantage of those Mariners, three fielding errors. Stephen Kwan, that five RBI performance. He's the second player in franchise history with five five RBIs in either of the first two games of the season, joining Kenny Lofton in that – or not – was it Kenny Lofton or Larry Dope? I don't know. One of those two. One's in the 90s, one's in the 1940s. So which era? <laughs> I, I, don't, which, I think it was, Which time are we in I want to say it was Kenny Lofton. All I'll right. check it. I'll, sounds, I'll check my notes again on that That sounds more correct. One. But it was just an ins- insane game from Stephen Kwan. You love to see the Guardians go out there. Game two, rebound, score nine runs. And you're going to need to have that type of offensive production every single time Hunter Gaddis takes the mound. And luckily, we, we take the win there. You know what's yeah. even crazier? Sorry to cut you off again, man. No, you're that good. Seattle only gave up four earned runs. Five unearned runs were scored by the Guardians. Yeah, they had that one error. So uh, it was I forget who made that hit. They sent it to right field, and then the outfielder threw it back in, and it hit the Guardians' base runner, and it ricocheted yeah. off of him, and then like three more runs came in. Yeah, that was a good call, though. I don't think that would have been a sacrifice fly because I think um, Gonzalez would have been toast at the plate. Yeah, yeah. It was Larry Doby, by the way. Oh, okay. It was not you're, Kenny Lofton. I was wrong. You're off by 50 years. All right. <laughs> anyway, all right. Let's go into last night's game. They won 2 nothing, so they improved 2-1 of the year. Uh, Josh Naylor and Andreas Jimenez both hit solo home runs. Aaron Savale went seven innings, three strikeouts, and only allowed two hits. Karen Shack redeemed himself last night for two innings, and Emmanuel Classe got the save. Your guys' thoughts on last night? Yeah, uh, Savali definitely silenced my hate for him because last season I'm like, oh my, this is just not going well. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it was just injuries last season. Let's just hope so. We cannot judge it on just one start, yeah. but he looked like Savali two years ago. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, I love what I saw out of Aaron Savali, and I loved what I saw out of Joshua Douglas, James Naylor. He's your favorite player. He'll be mine once he can hit off lefties. He's my favorite <laughs> player for a reason, man. Going 430 to right center field. Yeah, that was nice. Love seeing that, and those two solo shots were enough. Yeah, they were. Uh, and then tonight, oh, yeah, tonight at 4 o'clock, they played their last game of this four-game opening series with Seattle. Cal Cal. Cal Quantrill will be on the mound for the Guardians. He'll make his first start of the year. And Marco Gonzalez makes his season debut for Seattle. So how do you guys see tonight's matchup playing out? I think it's going to be tough to say because usually what Quantrill was doing last season is he would go out, he would give up like two or three a, a game. And that's good. That's solid. But Yeah, it's but fit, in a team fit in the rotation. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. In a team that's as deep as Seattle um, with pit, with pitching, it might be tough to be able to score more than two or three runs on them. Oh, I, I so yeah. I think Quant, I think the Guardians are going to lose here, split the series, and I think Quantrill will be the tough luck loser, but it'll be a good outing. I think he'll give up like a, he'll go six and probably give up two or three runs. Okay, Jake, I don't think Marco Gonzalez is all that great. He went ten for fifteen last year. That was his win loss record. Four point one three ERA last year as well. I see Quantrill giving the guards six solid innings here, maybe a. A one or two earned runs on that end, but give me the Guardians to win the series three to one today. Yeah, I like it a lot. I think the mag- with Quantrill, you know, he does give up a couple of runs a game. I think the magic number for tonight's five. If you can hit five runs, I think that should be sufficient enough to win tonight. Now, can they? 
I don't know. That's what that's what that's what they play the games for. Uh, you know, again, the Seattle team—they're a World Series contender. We can call it how it is. Uh, again, if you can take the series three-one, that would be phenomenal. But you do have a three-game series with the A's coming up, and they're nothing spectacular. So, you know, I'll I'll predict the Guardians to win. I'll be a homer today. There we go. And then another quick Guardians topic I want to bring up, guys. They introduced a $50 monthly pass for standing room only tickets to every home game throughout the month. So essentially, if you buy all uh, all six months of the MLB season, you would have season tickets to the Cleveland Guardians for $300. Is this, like, What are you guys' thoughts on this? Is this something you would buy or something you consider buying? I would consider buying it. Um, I know some tickets for the Guardians for a given day, like even outfield tickets can go for like $20 on yeah. one day. So that, that is a great deal for just standing mm-hmm. room tickets. Like, that's awesome. And, you know, again, some, some game, most games do not sell out at all. So who's to say you, no no one's going to stop you if you, you know, you get in with your standing room and go sit in the bleachers. No one, no one's yeah. going to care. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually didn't think about that because it's something that I wouldn't do because I prefer to have a seat, but I know others are fine and they enjoy that standing room only ticket. I also like to kind of pick and choose what games I go to, but for only $50 and all this the games yeah. is a steal for Guardians fans that don't mind standing room tickets only and they'll likely find themselves at the ballpark much more this season. And for the Guardians of Progressive Field, this is going to drive a lot more traffic to the ballpark on games like Monday through Thursday. Of course, weekend series, those are getting a good crowd. But Monday through Thursday, I could see a lot more fans at Progressive Field. Yeah, and this is something I've definitely looked into. If I, you know, I alluded to in Hot Mike, I have a uh, you know a couple of job interviews. If I get it, I will be working in downtown Cleveland. So I mean, it would be really nice to you know work three blocks away from Progressive Field, get off of work, go change, and then go to several Guardians games on a night. That would be a phenomenal way to spend my summer, in my opinion. I definitely think it's a great way to get people into the stadium. You know, we struggle with attendance, but again, I, I, I love the move, love it a lot. Uh, but then one last segment before we end the show. Jake, it's your favorite segment. It's the MLB Player of the Week. We'll give our AL Player of the Week first, and then we'll give our NL Player. Jake, I'll throw it to you. This is your segment. Start me off. Who's your AL Player of the Week? Oh, man, Matt. I do love this segment so much. MLB Player of the Week for the American League is Adley Rutschman of the Baltimore Orioles. He went 5-for-5 five five with a home run and four RBIs on opening day. He's the first catcher with five hits on opening day in MLB history. If you're making history in any type of capacity, you're likely going to be my MLB Player of the Week. For the American League, there's not a ton of good options, so I go Adley here for the first week of the MLB season. All right, Jeff, how about you? Shohei Otani, on opening day for uh, the Angels, he struck out 10 batters, and he went six shutout innings. Uh, also, in two games batting, he is batting three seventy five. So yeah, I, I also picked Shohei Otani. I think you've all probably seen the tweet where it's like people making fun of the Angels. It's like Shohei Otani does something that hasn't been done since the 1890s with like the Boston Bobcats and Mike Trout hits the cycle and the Angels lose 6-8. to eight. Yeah, I saw yeah, an the, April Fool's joke yesterday of like Shohei Otani starting to throw left-handed. Yeah, yeah. Otani struck out 10. Only gave up two entire hits, and he also went one from three from the plate on opening day, and they lost two to one. They lost. Uh, the Angels had only had five total hits. I feel bad for Otani and Trout. They're trapped on a terrible team. But before we end the show, guys, NL Player of the Week, Jake, I'll throw it back to you. Trace Thompson of the Dodgers. I don't think there's a really good option other than Thompson right now. He's of course the brother of NBA star Clay Thompson. Trace hit three home runs for the Dodgers last night, a grand slam, three-run homer, and a solo shot. He went three for four with eight RBIs 
in a 10 to 1 Dodgers win. Nice. Dev? My player is also on the Dodgers, but give me Will Smith. He is batting 571 thus far, thus far this season. You know, I, again. And it's only been three games, but yeah, still. For this, I picked a pitcher. I picked Marcus Stroman of the Chicago Cubs. On opening day, he had eight strikeouts and only gave up three hits, and the Cubs won 4 nothing. Guys, that concludes our show for today. It was a really fun time. Jake, thank you for giving the opportunity to me to host this show. I hope I made you. I hope I somewhat validated your decision. Uh, guys, any final thoughts before we end the show? I am just happy baseball is back and just excited. Yeah. Jake? Yeah. As am I. Happy April, everybody. April Fool's is the worst thing ever created. But uh, I'm excited that April's here. I'm excited that baseball's here. Let's have a great uh, start of the spring and summer. Yeah. Um. You know, go Browns, go Cavs, go Guardians. And then uh, stay tuned after this for Entertainment Rebooted. Isabel put together a great show for you guys as well. So stay here in 88.1.